Okay. I'll just uh, if we are content, are you happy for us to proceed to the agenda? Agreed. Apologies. I've had apologies from Jim Wells. Any other apologies? Unreceived. Has any member received authority to delegate authority to another member of the committee to vote under temporary standing order 115? Nope. Uh, declaration of interest. Uh, all members are pledged to decline any relevant financial or interest at the committee meeting as applicable. I declare an interest that I know Professor Hayward, David Henning, Christian, uh, Christian Benson and Shankar Singham from other uh, events that I have been at and other conferences that I have been a member of. Any other declaration? Oh, and I was involved in, I still am involved in a court case to do with the protocol. You too. And as is, I note, as uh, Mr. Alistair. Any other declar declarations of interest? Nope. Okay. Thank you. Moving on to the next item of the agenda, Chairperson's Business, uh, June Monitoring. Uh, the Minister's June Monitoring Round statement included a number of very welcome allocations to communities, health, education and justice. The statement also referred to a number of changes to the capital programme, including a reduction in financial transactions capital and reinvestment and reform initiative borrowing. It is hoped that the executive will be able to use capital investment to reinvigorate our post-COVID economy. It is therefore worrying that, in this, that, early in this, that this early in the year, we are already seeing uncertainty and apparent softening of that capital programme. Members, are we content to write to the Department and seek clarity as to whether there is a problem with the delivery of capital programmes in the construction sector, or, there are or whether there is a problem with sufficient officials in the Northern Ireland Civil Service to manage the capital programme? Even at this stage of the year, it seems strange that where it is a, quite a lot of softening up going up. Hi, Gemma. Good to see you. Are we content to write to the Department? Agreed. And next item is the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee Northern Ireland Protocol Meeting. The Northern Ireland Affairs Committee has invited me to chair its next informal meeting with the statutory committee chairpersons on the Northern Ireland Protocol on the 7th of July. Are you content to note? So noted. Uh, the draft minutes of proceedings on the 23rd of June. The draft minutes of the Finance Committee meeting on the 23rd of June at page 7. Are members content with the draft minutes on the 23rd of June or an accurate record of proceedings? Are we agreed? Great. Thank you. There are no matters arising. Okay. Right. I'd like to bring into the spotlight. I would like to bring in uh, Professor Katie Hayward, um, Martin Hall QC, uh, Dr. Anna Jaszewski, and David Henning, uh, Director of UK Trade Policy Project. Could we bring all four into the spotlight, please? Hi, Katie. Hi, Anna. Hi, David. Do we... Hi. Martin? I'm here. Martin, are you? Oh, excellent. Good to, good, to, good to hear and see you again. Sorry about that. Sorry, we didn't get that this way. Um, team, we're, uh, we're taking evidence on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is obviously of quite of considerable interest. And we're receiving oral evidence from experts in a range of fields to advise on different areas impacted by the Northern Ireland Protocol. We are welcoming Professor Katie Hayward, Professor of uh, so uh, Political Sociology, Queen's University, Belfast, and she will address a wide range of issues with members including the sea border, public opinion, uh, and has highlighted the area of scrutiny of governance in her written submission. Martin will be bringing legal expertise to the Committee's discussion on the Protocol and the UK Internal Market Act. Anna will be, as a customs expert, specialising in the movement of goods who can advise the Committee on experience on the ground. And David is going to bring his focus on the issues of good regulations and checks. 
uh, for the committee. Uh, the, briefing paper, the following papers are relevant. The clerk's briefing paper is page 16. A briefing paper from uh, 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 David is on page 18. An IFG report on the UK Internal Market Act is on page 19. And papers from Katie and Martin are on tabled, are in tabled items. I would like to remind you that the session has been recorded by Hansard. I'm going to ask each of you to make an opening statement for about five to ten minutes, and then we'll come back to questions from the group as the rest of it as well. Uh, just to inform you, we've had quite a lot of uh, inf information so far about the protocol, so uh, feel free that you don't have to. What would seem to be some of the sort of some of the more arcane things, if you f just feel as if you're happy to talk about them as you, as you go through. And I think most of us are now sort of fairly up to speed in sort of the minutiae. Minute and I say now that there will probably be quite a few questions on the minutiae as we go through and the rest of it. But uh, Professor Haywood, and it gives me an enormous amount of pleasure to actually use that official designation on a committee. Uh, but please, please make your opening remarks. Thank you very much, Chair. It's a great pleasure to appear before you um, this afternoon. So I will just make very brief remarks. Um, as you may be aware, we have just published today the latest findings from uh, a talk uh, from a poll that was conducted by Lucid Talk on our behalf in Queens, um, and I'm happy to discuss some of the details of those um, in due course. But for my opening remarks, I just wanted to sort of put things in context, really. Um, and this is basically to say that the current situation with respect to the protocol is really quite entirely predictable in many ways. Um, I was looking earlier at a piece that I wrote with Tony Smith, who was, was the former head of the UK Border Force. Uh, we published this in May last year on the LSE blog, and we were advising on what needs to be done in order to minimise the disruption associated with the protocol, bearing in mind its implications for movement of goods across the Irish Sea. And we asked for three principles to be borne in mind and acted upon. Uh, the first was the principle of partnership, recognizing that implementing any border uh, or change in border management system requires a wide spectrum of actors to be involved. Um, it requires care and caution with respect to the design of the system used to manage that border, and importantly involves trust and respect between government agencies and industry, i.e. those um, tasked with using this system, bearing in mind, of course, that COVID complicated the conditions within which this uh, border management system was going to be developed, the new um, arrangements were going to be enacted, uh, we can still recognise that there were serious failures with respect to partnership, um, um, as, would have, as we would have hoped to have been seeing in 2020. Another principle we talked about was cross-border cooperation, uh, the need for collaboration and good communication between those involved. In the protocol case, we have an unusual situation, of course, in that the UK authorities are the ones implementing the EU's border, um, so to speak. Um, but we do know that that collaboration and communication has, has been essential between the UK and the EU is severely lacking, particularly with respect to transfer of relevant information. And just on that last principle, the principle of preparation, um, part of the preparation that was needed was um, adequate access to relevant information that was not present at the time, and there is still a, a long way to go until there is adequate information on the movement of goods across the Irish Sea uh, to enable intelligence to be used and to minimise the, the uh, uh, checks happening. 
So in practice, none of those principles were enacted, despite um, my best efforts with Tony Smith um, and, and others are appearing before you as witnesses. Um, and of course, the practical implementation of the protocol and preparation for its implementation was caught up very much in the political negotiations last year. Uh, the use of the UK internal market bill and certain clauses in that added to the political pressure and indeed distracted from the requirements of the protocol and the necessary preparation for implementing it. So by the time we had those decisions in 17th of December, uh, they were temporary measures. They weren't what was being asked for by business from Northern Ireland, not least of which um, the need for certain mitigations and also uh, a clear amount of information in advancing um, uh, preparation for the protocol. Um, so by the time it came to it, um, we had not just the disruption and the paperwork burden, which is definitely the most imp um, consequential impact of the protocol so far on businesses. Uh, there was also that context of uncertainty. We've seen good movements today with the announcement of extending that grace period on chilled meats, but in many ways that just adds to uncertainty in some ways because it's not any long-term resolution. With respect to the long-term resolution of these major issues, i.e. SPS controls, this is an ideologically significant decision. So, in effect, it's only, it's only significant because the UK government decided that what it is currently not prepared to do for GB, i.e. align dynamically with EU rules, it was prepared to allow to happen for Northern Ireland. Um, and all of the discussion around the veterinary agreement, etc., comes in that context. Um, and just to conclude, this is now, of course, therefore inevitably a wider concern for politics in Northern Ireland and a wider concern for society. And we're seeing that in these uh, latest uh, results from this Lucid Talk Queen's poll. Um, notably, uh, the majority of concerns lie with respect to political stability and governance and scrutiny of decision-making around the protocol. And just to conclude, we did see a good step um, in, in, in that direction earlier this week in the Assembly with Shevkovich appearing uh, before the Committee of the Executive Office. I know Lord Frost has been extended an invitation as well. I hope he takes that up uh, because the clear majority of our respondents were suggesting that they would like to see such accountability and scrutiny in practice. Thank you. Thanks, Kitty. Just before I bring in Martin, the Lucid Talk poll, what was the margin of error on the Lucid Talk poll? It's plus or minus 2%, 2.5%. And the sample size? So uh, the sample size that was used for the weighted analysis was 1,500. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Kitty. Uh, Martin? Give me uh, uh, thank you, uh, Chairman. Um, can I just say that um, my focus is on the, uh, in effect, the legal and constitutional uh, aspects of the protocol and the way it works, uh, and I've sought to summarise that in a, in a, in a short paper um, which I produced, and I apologise for the late stage of it, but uh, uh, the, the main point uh, in that paper uh, is that the existence, the, the legal status of the protocol, or the status that it has been given uh, by the Act of the UK Parliament, which implemented it, 
namely the European Union Withdrawal Agreement Act of 2020, uh, is actually akin to the legal status that was given to the uh, European treaties uh, and to instruments underneath them, uh, uh, European Union uh, secondary legislation and laws, uh, during our period of membership of the European Union. Uh, and the consequence of that uh, is that all the same doctrines, uh, supremacy of EU law, uh, and uh, the, the fact that EU law will override all laws of national origin, continue to apply uh, within the scope of the protocol. Uh, and particularly they apply within Northern Ireland, although uh, in, in the case of the state aid provisions, uh, there's an overreach to the whole of Great Britain. Uh, the, uh, the consequence of that is that um, although the, the UK Internal Market Bill can be regarded uh, as uh, providing uh, modern-day implementation uh, of the principles that were originally put into the Articles of Union of 1800, and indeed in the earlier Articles of Union between England and Scotland, uh, for the free movement of goods throughout the United Kingdom uh, without uh, being uh, held up by barriers between different parts of the United Kingdom or different legislative provisions. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the legal position, as I, as I analyze it, is that the protocol prevails over, uh, and indeed it contradicts and prevails over the principles in the uh, UK Internal Market Act, um, e even though that act is, is later in time than the Withdrawal Agreement Act. Uh, and that is uh, by application of the uh, quite an old case, but very well-known principle in the Factotating case, uh, where it was held that uh, an act of the UK Parliament um, was overridden and had to be rendered ineffective within the UK courts uh, as a consequence uh, of a conflict uh, with provisions of the then Treaty of Rome um, in, in fact, in the context of fishing and quota hopping, that case was. Uh, and, and this, this uh, applies. So we have a scenario where the protocol itself is a sort of superior form of law uh, to uh, acts of the UK Parliament or, in, or, or indeed uh, assembly measures um, and will override them. Uh, and, and indeed, any secondary uh, European Union measures which are given force within Northern Ireland by the protocol also override domestic law. Uh, and this problem, uh, the, the, the question of checks at the IRC border, of course, is, is, is very, very important. Uh, and the impact, adverse impact on businesses in Northern Ireland uh, of checks uh, is obviously very much in the public spotlight. However, in my view, that, that's not really the fundamental source of the problem. Uh, the fundamental source of the problem is that Northern Ireland is obliged to accept uh, different laws from those applying in the rest of the United Kingdom with no possibility, as long as the protocol remains in anything like its present form, uh, of those laws being adapted or altered uh, or, or opted out of. Um, and uh, this means that 
uh, as time goes on, and as inevitably divergences will occur, and more and more divergences uh, between European Union laws and laws of the United Kingdom, uh, Northern Ireland will be left stuck uh, without any choice uh, in the matter within the EU system. And one particular example I've given uh, where this is particularly important, uh, I, I think, you know, at the moment we're talking uh, about chilled meats and sausages and things, and unfortunately, that, 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 as serious it is, there's a sort of slightly comic uh, um, uh, potential uh, in that, you know, harking back to um, the, the, the Yes Minister series and the speech about the EU's European Union sausage directives. But um, it, it is serious enough, but the more fundamental problem uh, can be ex exhibited or explained by the example of medicines regulation where one aspect of the protocol uh, is to import into Northern Ireland uh, European Union medicines laws, the, uh, uh, the regulation which governs uh, centrally uh, granted marketing authorizations granted by the EMA um, and the directive uh, which regulates the conduct of, of national uh, authorities within uh, the member states and in respect to Northern Ireland, uh, binds the actions of the MHRA. Uh, and the consequence of that will be that as time goes on, um, that there will increasingly be cases of medicines and sometimes important medicines, which will be licensed for use in the United Kingdom, but will not be available within Northern Ireland uh, because of conflict with the European Union medicine system. Um, uh, I, I think I'm... Producing that really as an example, because you could make similar points, although perhaps not with uh, such serious consequences, uh, across the board of the huge area of European Union laws which are applied to Northern Ireland by this protocol. So my uh, conclusion, I think, is that the problem with the problems with the protocol. Uh, are real um, democratic and constitutional problems uh, which are so fundamental that, you know, whatever you do to try and ease up border controls uh, are not going to be solved and therefore something more radical will have to be done uh, uh, with the protocol. Okay. Uh, thank you, Martin. Anna? Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to use this, these opening remarks to provide a bit of a, a, an overview of where we are in terms of customs and, and, and the border, uh, the impact on traders and why this is still very much a, a moving picture, why, why this is still subject to change. This will be very high level, so obviously I'm uh, more than happy to discuss these points in detail uh, when we get to questions. In terms of the protocol, we, we know that it was a, a high-level agreement and it was quite obvious from the beginning that it will be all around how this is implemented. And when it comes to um, customs and, and movement of goods, uh, that area that I work in, it was Article 5 and, and the implementation of Article 5, which was left to the Joint Committee and the decisions, the crucial decisions around Article 5 were postponed to the second half or the final quarter of, of 2020. So where we ended up in January uh, was a solution, uh, a multi-layered solution that allowed 
various ways for, cost, for, for traders and iTraders to avoid paying EU tariffs. You have the uh, end-use option with the trader scheme, uh, you have the option based on tariffs, and you have the waiver. So three ways to avoid paying tariffs. And that system is incredibly complex. It used to take me about seven to ten minutes to provide a very brief high-level overview of this solution to, to companies, and very often it was you know, not sufficient for them to understand what they need to do. At the same time, and I think it's important to, to point that out, if you just look at how similar situations, and I don't mean a similar situation as, a, as such a unique border as the one that we have now, but um, questions around goods arriving at the border without certainty what's going to happen with them later on, such situations are normally addressed by customs, by options or solutions that are much more burdensome in terms of additional admin for, for companies. So in a way, and I appreciate it might sound like a contradiction because it is a complex solution, but in a way it is also pragmatic and flexible and provide very, provides various options for companies to avoid paying, paying tariffs. I think it's, it's, it's um, quite important uh, to mention that. Uh, the second point would be that this is very much still subject to change. So since January, we've had some clarifications, some guidance, some changes that were incredibly helpful, like the apportionment system, which means that if you are a, a trader, if you are a UK, um, uh, if you're under the, the trader system, you may, you can tell customs, uh, look, 80% of these goods are going to stay in NI and 20% might enter the EU market. This is, this is a helpful simplification. But we're also going to have some changes that might impact how companies uh, operate at the moment. So, for example, the, the trader scheme at the moment is opened also to companies that are not established in NI from November onwards. This will be narrowed down to companies that are established in NI. And it might sound like something that's beneficial for NI companies, but under some scenarios and under certain circumstances, this will actually be more difficult for, for NI companies, and I'm happy Anna, to come just, back to this. Anna, can I just ask a quick question, sir? Sir, ju just to get this clear in, my, in mind, it is only companies that are registered in Northern Ireland, or is it companies that are primarily their business based in Northern Ireland? Because obviously an awful lot of Northern Ireland companies are registered in GB. Yes, so there's there's a, a, a entire guidance on this. It's obviously um, companies that are established in NI, and companies that have their pr um, principal operations and customs operations in NI. Right. So it's not just simply companies that are established. This is the first condition. Then there's an option for companies that are not established, but are also supplying uh, NI um, clients, companies that are established and have the principal customs uh, functions in NI, and so on and so forth. There are other conditions. So, so there are several conditions. From November onwards, this will be narrowed down to companies that are either established or meet the, um, I forgot the, the, the actual term of it, but meet the principal uh, operations in an I criteria. So there's again a set of criteria that companies need to meet before November in order to be uh, to continue to be eligible to take advantage of the trader scheme. Okay, thanks. And so, so that that's one of the changes that that you know uh, is is uh, upcoming. And every change obviously uh, potentially brings additional disruptions, additional confusion. Uh, the IT system that 
NI companies use to trade with the rest of the world was supposed to change this month. We, we're not entirely sure when is the, this is uh, going to happen, but it, again, is another change. And I think one of the most important aspects here is the fact that the definition of unfettered access will be, will be narrowed down. So, so this obviously is one of the key parts of the protocol, the unfettered, the unfettered access from NI to, to GB. Yet we've known from, well, we've known for the last six months that at some point this year, we will get an updated definition of who can benefit from this unfettered access. And the point here is to make sure that it's only NI companies or, or companies located in NI that can benefit to prevent a scenario whereby, for example, a German company imports something, or not imports, moves something to the Republic, from the Republic to NI, from NI to GB to avoid uh, customs formalities and uh, tariffs if tariffs are due. So, but again, depending on how this is done, it might again have a significant impact on on some of the uh, of the companies located in an eye, and just finally, around impact on traders and, and Sarana, impact just, on just, trade. Just going to ask you just a, a quick question here, because again, that's another an important point about the issue about unfettered access being narrowed down. For example, the likes of Tesco's and Sainsbury's, who have, or particularly Sainsbury's, which has a large distribution system coming into Northern Ireland, but only deals within Northern Ireland, but is obviously not a Northern Ireland company by any shape or form. Does that mean, therefore, that the definition wouldn't apply to them? We don't know yet. We don't have that definition. We don't have any visibility of how this is shaping up. We've known we had. Uh, we've known because there is a, a sentence or two sentences in one of the uh, guidance, HMRC guidance, saying that at some point in 2021 we will get a proper definition of which companies are uh, eligible. We've heard that this is to make sure that it's only companies located or, or working in Northern Ireland, but we don't have visibility of, of what this is going to look like. I would imagine that companies like that will obviously be taken into account, but uh, this is just an opinion at this point. Okay, thanks. Okay, so <laughs> uh, to just kind of finish off the opening remarks, in terms of impact on trader, I think what Martin uh, mentioned about checks is incredibly important, but I think it's also important to remember that checks very often, especially when it comes to customs, perhaps slightly uh, differently for, for SPS uh, issues, checks are not where the problem or the main problem is. It's the work that companies need to do before the goods arrive at the border or afterwards. So it's the formalities, it's the work, the additional work, the additional compliance, the additional knowledge that companies need to have to be able to get to that border. Uh, so many solutions that are proposed to, to uh, you know, quote, solve the, the border issue, focus on like the, um, mutual enforcement force on the removal of checks, but checks are not the only problem and they completely forget about the, the, the how much work is involved in, um, in, in, in the formalities. So um, I'm happy to continue um, talking about it or trade the version that, that occurred and that we've seen with companies as well, but I think I'll stop here for now. Okay, thanks Anna. Thank you, Thank you very much indeed. And sorry for interrupting as we went through. There were just a couple of important points there I just wanted to bring out Absolutely. while I was fresh on them. David, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chair. Another occasion when I'd like to be with you in Northern Ireland, but uh, yeah. can't be. Hopeful to join you soon. 
Um, look, I want to make five um, brief points, I hope, uh, that explain my point of view on the protocol. The, the first one is that modern business and trade is complex. I think you've already got that from, uh, from Anna and from Martin. But just to emphasize, virtually every product and service is regulated. It's subject to taxes, duties, and not only national regulation, but there's international regulation, whether in the World Trade Organization, in trade agreements, there's international voluntary standards, and so on. That creates barriers between countries and actually, in many cases, it creates barriers within countries where regulations can be made at state or provincial level, such, for example, that Canada has a free trade agreement with itself uh, between the, the national government and the, uh, and the provinces. Barrier-free trade within a country is not actually the norm, um, even within the UK, as had been the case before 2016. It doesn't have to be. Um, a constitutional issue it might it may be a, a constitutional issue barrier free trade to multiple markets ought to be a very good position my second point is that it's only within the eu that borders have been removed due to extensive regulatory harmonization and it's just as likely in the future that that will be reversed uh, than that other countries will uh, move towards um, having no checks at borders the EU is particularly concerned about the purity of their single market, predominantly to keep their barriers down internally. So unless they can trust what comes in to the EU as a whole, they are not then they're worried that countries won't trust uh, each other enough to keep their barriers down and then the single market will disappear. The reality of a border is the place where the paperwork, the product, the driver all come together um, and you know, that's the one place everything comes together, plus the, the nature of ensuring safe food in particular leads to this conclusion. Technology can reduce burdens, it can um, make things easier, and for, for many vehicles, uh, the most high-tech borders can feel relatively straightforward, but there is always the risk of delays, there is always the paperwork. My third point then is that the protocol is an attempt to manage the interaction of border and regulation in the context of Brexit. The implication of checks of products on entry to Northern Ireland was, I think, obvious immediately. And I, I think I saw uh, Nigel Dodds say that earlier this week, that he and, and uh, the Democratic Unionist Party warned the government of this within days or hours of uh, hearing about the, the protocol. Um, it isn't just probably from Great Britain to Northern Ireland either. The same is likely to apply in the future from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, unless the UK government voluntarily accepts that all EU products can be inevitably safe to, to enter, unless we, we don't wish to diverge or have higher standards. Because if we introduce new regulations which are more onerous than in the EU, how do we enforce them if there are no checks on products entering? I mean, I don't believe the UK government has addressed that point except uh, in the vaguest terms um, so there are likely to be checks under the protocol for the foreseeable future potentially both ways does that international uh, best practice or international norms would suggest that does not make northern ireland any lesser part of the U united kingdom but i accept that there are different views on that on that case um the fourth point for me, and this actually picks up quite similarly to uh, points that Martin made, the heart of the protocol for me is in the 300 plus EU regulations that it requires Northern Ireland to follow, according to the annexes. Now, 
my own belief is that the UK government will have carried out a detailed assessment of, the, of these uh, and their implications, which they have never shared uh, publicly or indeed mm -hmm. think to privately. If they didn't do that um, more detailed investigation, I would be surprised and that would be really quite irresponsible. There is a huge amount of detail that is required to be followed in Northern Ireland as well as kept updated um, on a huge number of, of regulations. And I do agree with Martin that that is a, an absolutely clear def democratic deficit that Northern Ireland has no say in the, impl in, the, uh, in the implementation, in effect, of these under the protocol. That was obvious at the time of signing. It was obvious at the time of ratification. And I still believe that that, you know, that issue needs to be addressed. David, could I just interject there? Um, again, I should have made a declaration of interest that uh, I used to be the chief executive of the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. And before Brexit, I was very much involved. In, there was an FCO-led, and then whatever we called Biz That Day, uh, scheme that looked at sort of the potential implications of Brexit and where it would lie, particularly in trade between Britain and Ireland. And there were something like a sort of 186 primary with three or four subsections to each, and it sort of it mapped it out. One of the key questions he asked was where we would be with the applicability of EU rules and regulations going forward, and the ability for any part of the sort of the UK to absorb those as they're any separate. In your, and I, I know you alluded to it, but I think you've said, and I just want to sort of hone into this bit. Do you feel as if that the UK government has actually done the detailed research and analysis into those regulations, or was it a skim across? And it's, I, I know it would be a slightly unfair question to ask anybody else, but I know you'll have looked at this. It is my best judgment that the UK government has done at least some work on these regulations and what is contained within the regulations and what Northern Ireland will be required to sign up to. It is unlikely, I think, that they have done a very detailed assessment on all 300 yeah. or so and everything that is entailed within them. But I think that at the very least, I would expect them to have understood where, for example, within the 300, there are checks required, what kind of checks are required, um, and other things that have particular significance to Northern Ireland. Um, and, and maybe that actually leads on to, naturally to my, the final point I was going to make, which is that both treaties and regulations are difficult to understand and interpret. They are typically frameworks for both sides to jointly implement in the case of um, treaties or in the, case of in the case of regulations for whoever has to implement them. They are very rarely so uh, prescriptive that you understand immediately uh, what you have to do in absolute detail. That is left to those uh, doing the implementation. Um, that, in my opinion, does not extend to the suggestion that any checks is the same as legal purism. It is fairly clear to me that uh, the net effect of 300 regulations is that there have to be checks but what those checks are, how often they are carried out, and details such as that, who does it, is, in my opinion, in many cases, open to interpretation and to agreement. Um, so that allows for the fact that the general basis of the protocol, to me, is clear that there will always be checks, short of alignment. How they are implemented is not so clear. And what the overall implications are for Northern Ireland, I still believe, well, obviously, we are having this discussion now, um, is clearly... Um, a very much a live issue. Thank you. Yeah. 
Thanks very much indeed, and thank you very much indeed, all, all of you, for your excellent sort of analysis and an excellent sort of uh, talking to this committee. Look, I've just got a few questions before I open up to uh, the rest of the group. Um, and it's a f first one is quite a general issue because I think um, news today is obviously the push about the new rules on state aid rules and how state aids is uh, likely to be applied, and how the United Kingdom is looking at state aids. Uh, does anybody have any indication how that is likely to work for Northern Ireland and whether we're going to be in some way in a differential position when it comes to state aid? I think I already know the answer, but I would like to have uh, your perspectives on it. Uh, the second question for everybody, I think, is the question about uh, one of the questions about VAT and excise issues. And of course, one of the issues is that we're dealing with on this island, we have differential VAT on areas from everything, hospitality and other areas. The question is what sort of, uh, what sort of uh, ability we would have within, the, within that context to be able to, to look to set VAT in a way that would be both seen to be competitive against our sort of friends down south, but also not to be in a position where we're going to get hauled in front of the ECJ every time we do it. And then the final one, I think, is probably more related to Kitty. And thank you very much indeed for the Lucid Talk poll and what you were doing. But I think from what we've seen from the Lucid Talk poll and recent polling is that Northern Ireland has become very polarised. It's a very polarised place at the best of times, but we're now incredibly polarised over the sort of uh, the protocol. And it seems to be by looking at your figures from Lucid Talk and comparing with some other things, is actually there's been a hardening of positions. So maybe Katie, if you could come in at the end of it and just ask uh, if you could answer that, that that particular point. But over to you, panel, please. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so, so, sorry, who, who would you like to start? Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. That? I, I, that's, that's a classic position of, position of sort of a Northern Ireland chair. He just shows it open to see who fights for it and comes up with the answer. <laughs> no. <laughs> Martin, if you could go first, and then we could, if we just have uh, Katie come in last. Martin, Martin, David, and Anna, and then uh, Katie, please. Uh, I, I think rather than cover everything um, that you've asked, uh, perhaps I can just focus on where I think I can uh, contribute most. And, uh, the state aid question, uh, there, there will undoubtedly be a differential in the state aid rules between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, after, at the moment, of course, the whole United Kingdom is still in effect, uh, carrying on with the EU system of state aid control, but uh, the announcement has been as expected um, that the United Kingdom will, will create its own state aid control system. However, uh, within Northern Ireland, the state aid rules are governed by the protocol, or, or rather the protocol imports the EU state aid ro rules uh, with, uh, for example, European Commission oversight. Um, so the system will stay very much unchanged. Uh, a particular pinch point uh, is the extent to which uh, the state aid rules in the protocol actually also extend into, uh, into and apply to businesses in Great Britain. Uh, the, the reason for this uh, is that unlike, um, say, Article 5.2 that it applies um, the EU regulations to, well, the words it uses are to the United Kingdom in respect of Northern Ireland, uh, the state aid provision uh, contains no such limitation 
and instead the the limitation uh, on the, the scope of the EU's state aid rules is functional rather than uh, by reference to geography it's whether or not the aid will affect trade under the protocol uh, which is analogous to the current situation where the rules apply to subsidies which may affect trade between member states. And based on European court jurisprudence, that is a very, very low threshold test. Um, so that, for example, um, subsidizing a, a plant of car plant in England, which uh, Interalia exports goods into Northern Ireland, would lead to an effect on trade in the protocol because uh, that could impact on uh, the sale of competing cars traveling from Germany into Northern Ireland, so that could well be caught within it. But, but I feel as far as activities within Northern Ireland are concerned, it seems to me uh, that it's uh, under the protocol, it's just completely uh, 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 held within the, um, the, the EU state aid system, as I say, with oversight by the European Commission. Okay, thanks. David, then Anna, please. Only, only briefly to, uh, to add to that, uh, I'm sure that's absolutely right on state aid. I have the ongoing question as to whether the enforcement regime is actually quite the same as the enforcement regime as being an EU member, and I don't believe it can be. I, I, you, you've signed up in treaty to, um, the, you know, in effect, the ECJ oversight, but I'm not actually sure that that, that, that quite works. How we, you know, we already know that the, uh, what has happened uh, with regard to um, the uh, UK's alleged breaches, has gone to you know has has gone for to the to the ECJ, I, I, I believe. But you're not a member anymore. You're not you know we're bound to it in in, in treaty terms. It almost it seems to be a, almost more of a discussion. So I think that the state aid, as in much of the regulatory interpretation, is still open to interpretation. Ultimately, I have to Martin shake his head, but it, it's the way it's it's the way it's it's implemented. I'm just not sure that the ECJ are going to be it's going to be able to work because the nature of UK um, the, the UK agreeing to it working in that way. I just don't see how that uh, how that works. It's, you know, the, the, the legality I'm sure is there. I'm not sure the implementation can quite be in that way. VAT, I would much soon. I would. I would. I am absolutely not an expert, and I'm afraid you you need a you need a VAT uh, expert. I would merely add that if Northern Ireland is polarised, I'm afraid that according to the uh, opinion polling in, uh, in in Great Britain, we are also polarised. Uh, not on the on the, uh, on the on the protocol so much as as Bre on Brexit as a whole. So uh, I, I I fear that we're all quite polarised. Okay, Anna. Thank you. I um, don't think this, these questions are, are necessarily uh, for me. On the VAT, what I will add is that, yes, the dual kind of alignment, the dual VAT system uh, is, is quite complex and comes with, I mean, VAT in general is, is complex like any other area of tax, it's, uh, but the, having a dual, uh, dual system uh, doesn't help. And obviously, this needs to be viewed through the substantial changes to VAT accounting that will take place in the EU as of tomorrow that will definitely impact SMEs, uh, online sales, uh, B2C sales and, and so on. But in terms of whether it's possible and how to do it, I think that's more of a legal question and I will defer to Martin really on that because that's not really an implementation, that's, that's how you do it from a legal perspective. Okay, thanks Anna. Kitty. 
Yes, thank you. So just to answer these questions on polling, I mean, I don't want to confuse matters, but if um, I just refer to the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey, which is obviously quite a different type of survey, but um, we conducted that at the end of last year, and it's notable that half of our respondents pretty much were saying that the protocol is a mixed bag, um, with about 18, 19% either side saying it's good or it's bad. So definitely what we've seen in the first few months of um, 2021 has been a polarization that wasn't there before the protocol came into play and perhaps before january the 29th and the um uh, the with the idea of triggering article 16 i think we all know that was very significant um another point is that when we had this uh, the first round of this poll in mid-march um those positions that we're seeing now um were there already so essentially what we've seen by june is that We've just seen a further entrenchment rather than an exacerbation of that of that polarization. And we see that polarization in terms of people who say the protocol is appropriate or not. So essentially 47% either side saying it's appropriate or it's not appropriate. Um, and then when it comes to the question of how people want their MLAs to vote on Articles 5 to 10 at the end of 2024, again, it's pretty much even split as to whether they want them to vote for or against the continuation of Articles 5 to 10. But I think it's also important to recognize what people do agree on, at least for the for a considerable part. So they do agree that specific arrangements are necessary for Northern Ireland to get out of Brexit. The majority agrees that there are economic opportunities for Northern Ireland from the protocol. Uh, the majority, as I mentioned, agree that scrutiny of decision making around the protocol needs to be improved. They're very um, clear that they want more information and better information. There are concerns from the majority around the potential impact of Brexit and the protocol in economic terms, um, and the majority agree that the UK should align with the EU's rules to reduce trade frictions across the Irish Sea. So it, it's possible to focus on what divides people, and unsurprisingly, uh, if you dig down into the data, you see strong differences between unionists and nationalists and neithers vis-a-vis the protocol. Um, but perhaps it's also useful to concentrate on what people do agree on um, uh, because that potentially uh, helps us see a way forward uh, from this point. Okay. Thanks very much today, Katie. Jim? Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Pano. Uh, and uh, Martin High, uh, I think you put your finger on a number of very important issues uh, in identifying that really the protocol, the key lasting defining effect of it is the constitutional impact and import of it. And I wanted in that context to take you to Article 13.3 of the protocol, uh, which seems to necessitate absolute alignment uh, to the EU acquis on anything that touches upon the matters uh, covered by the protocol. Um, and the question to you was this. If those various identified regulations are subsequently amended by the EU or new regulations within that ambit are made, do they, are, are they automatically applicable to Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland statute book in that sense has to be automatically updated and they cannot be blocked by the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Uh, 
Sorry, I turned my microphone off to avoid stray sounds coming in. Um, the, 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 it, it's different depending on uh, different aspects. Where uh, an existing measure is amended uh, by the European Union, then that apply the amended measure as amended applies automatically to Northern Ireland. Um, that, that, that's here. There's a slight distinction here between regulations and directives. Yes. Uh, a regulation, an, an EU regulation is, is, you know, it's just like an Act of Parliament. It applies yeah. directly to citizens and businesses uh, as part of the law. Um, so if a regulation is amended, it will apply as amended within Northern Ireland uh, without any uh, intervening process. Uh, if a directive is amended, that creates an obligation on the United Kingdom to change internal law to comply with the directive and there is machinery for carrying that out uh, within section 8c uh, of the withdrawal act um, by, by statutory instrument uh, and of course as, as you appreciate the assembly also has a role in, in statutory instruments in this field uh, but, but only limited discretions within what the directive allows so so if the uh, eu changes a directive which is within annex 2 of the protocol, then no matter what the United Kingdom Parliament thinks of it, no matter what the Northern Ireland Assembly thinks of it, it applies directly and unalterably to Northern Ireland. If, yes, a direct, the legal obligation it creates on the United Kingdom is there, and there is no choice but to implement it. So, um, the, the third area um, which you mentioned is, is what if a new EU measure uh, is adopted within the scope uh, of the, the fields covered by Annex 2 to the protocol. Uh, and, and there it's slightly different. Uh, it, it isn't directly, it doesn't apply directly. Uh, it has to be agreed jointly in the Joint Committee to apply it to Northern Ireland. Uh, however, the, the mechanism here is really very similar to, or identical to, the mechanism under the European Economic Area Agreement, under which Norway and, and the other EEA countries uh, apply um, EU single market laws uh, under the EEA agreement. Uh, and, and that technically gives them the right um, not to apply them. But if they do not apply them, the European Union is then able to take um, countervailing or retaliatory measures uh, to suspend the EA agreement or, or aspects of it. Uh, and in practice, I think there has been no occasion when Norway or the other EEA states have held out against uh, implementing um, uh, new European Union directives. Um, the, the Norway tried to hold out for a couple of years, I think, on the Postal Services Directive but were induced to give way in the end. So, so, so although so, it doesn't apply automatically, there are mechanisms for applying pressure uh, to, um, in effect, push uh, Northern Ireland into accepting it. So de, de facto, it's EU rule uh, through that. But on the point that take, let's stay for a moment with a regulation which is varied by the EU. Parliament can't change it in the United Kingdom Assembly can't change it, so it effectively is regulation without representation. 
It's hard to think of that as anything other than putting Northern Ireland in a state of vassalage, is it? Well, um, that, 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 that's your word, but I, I'm not sure I can, I don't disagree with it, um, because uh, it, it is the application of laws uh, in which, you know, citizens in Northern Ireland cannot vote in, on, on them by any route. Um, uh, you, you know, you, you can't vote in the Assembly elections to get rid of it because the Assembly has no power to do it. You can't vote in Westminster elections to get rid of it because the Westminster power, uh, Parliament has no power to do it. And does anyone on the panel think that in, by the standard of democracy that we expect in 2021, that that is acceptable? Does any panel member thinks that's an acceptable imposition in respect of Northern Ireland? I, um, can I maybe um, join, join, this, um, join this conversation? I had already mentioned that there is, a de there is a democratic deficit, but I do not believe that it is as stark as that, because when we are talking in the reality about um, regula regulations being made, they are being made on specific, uh, on specific subjects, so what, what are the options that are available to the UK government in this? Well, depends on exactly what the regulation states, but there may be the opportunity to pass, alter, you know, to pass alternate regulations. There may be the opportunity, as we have already seen, to say to the EU, that is unacceptable, we cannot oh, go Sorry. with that. Yeah. Um, this is not a, it is not, you're putting it as a one-way street in which uh, the EU rules, if the EU rules tomorrow, that's it, that's it, everything falls into play. But in reality, the way that laws are made, that is not quite the, uh, the, the case. And I say that having already accepted fully an agreement that there is a democratic deficit, so, but so it is not you... quite as I think, as, uh, as, as you, can, you can make it more blunt than it really is. Are you disagreeing with Martin High when he says that a regulation currently applicable under the protocol, if it is changed solely by Brussels, as it would be, that the United Kingdom can do anything about it? And if so, where within the protocol does that provision exist? With respect, you are wrong. It is in the implementation of individual regulations, number one. Number two, there is clearly always the opportunity, as we have already seen, uh, for discussion between the UK and the EU. I am not arguing that there is, that, that, that actually we have much of a choice, but I am saying that to bluntly say the EU rules on this today and tomorrow we, Im tomorrow we implement does not have to be the case. Well, um, respect, there, it there is greater complexity to the implementation of regulation than simply we they rule we follow. Well, you're, just, you're, just, you're just doing your best, but with respect, Jim, it's quite Jim, clear under the protocol, Jim, it's the EU writ that runs Jim, with respect to these matters. Jim, it's hard enough doing this through Zim. Please, through the chair. Thanks, yes, the chair. Thank uh, I'm suggesting that no matter how you dress this up, the plain fact is that on the issues that have been identified, in respect of these regulations which the EU alone can change, it is the EU's writ exclusively that runs in Northern Ireland. 
I will disagree with you on that. That's not, not how I would interpret the way in which regulations are made. Yes, the EU has a very strong power. No, you do not have to democratic influence over, the, over what the EU does, but there is still room for the UK government and for the Northern Ireland Assembly to be making, to be making decisions. Well, on exactly what they are, we have to look at specifics of the individual regulation. It's not possible to make a generic statement of this re that, that all regulations are immediately implemented in this way. Sorry, could I ask Martin how then do you wish to vary or change what you've said if your colleague uh, disagrees with you, or do you stand by what you uh, said? Uh, no, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I think if we specifically take the case of European Union regulations, uh, not, not directives, but regulations, they have, are directly applicable inside member states and under the protocol are directly applicable inside Northern Ireland. That means that you can go to court and enforce them without the legislature or the government doing anything to bring them into force. Uh, and if we take the example of the uh, European Union on, on medicines, centrally authorised medicines by the European Medicines Agency, that is a regulation which is directly applicable. And if that is amended by the EU legislature, then it will apply as amended in Northern Ireland with no intervening uh, process of negotiation um, or, or otherwise. I mean, of course, the British, government, the, 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 the British government could go to the EU and say, please, please, please amend it in its application to Northern Ireland and plead for it. But, but, but there would be no um, precursor negotiating step uh, before it came into force and, and was directly effective in the courts. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Phil. Okay, thank Sorry. you, panel, uh, for your points so far. Just a couple of points following on from Jim. And it's, it's to you, Martin, that you referred, uh, and it's the same points that Jim made, that Northern Ireland is to accept laws not relevant to other parts of the United Kingdom due to the protocol. And then you would want to say it's democratically and constitutionally affecting Northern Ireland, and something more radical needs done. In your learned opinion, Martin, what do you mean by something more radical needs done? Well, uh, I, I, I mean, my own view is, is rather than trying to implement, I, I think the, the protocol is basically flawed um, because, um, I, I mean, Anna has talked about the custom side um, where at least there's a system which says that if goods are not at risk, of going across the border, uh, then you don't have to pay tariffs on their importation into Northern Ireland and Great Britain, or at least you, or you can get them back if they have been paid. But there is no such let out um, as regards regulations on goods. Um, the, the, the EU single market laws on goods apply completely and entirely to goods which are made in Northern Ireland, consumed in Northern Ireland, or made in Great Britain, imported to Northern Ireland and consumed in Northern Ireland, even if there is no risk at all of them crossing the border. Uh, uh, this is a fundamental flaw in the construction of the protocol. Um, it goes back to the way Theresa May negotiated it, um, uh, with, uh, I, I think, motives of, of trying to, uh, in her vision, get the whole United Kingdom stuck permanently in the European Union regulatory sphere 
rather than negotiating it from the point of view of an independent country, um, it's still there, and I think it will have to go. Um, the way I'd like to do it would be for Parliament to pass an act that said that the UK Internal Markets Act prevails over the protocol, um, so that uh, goods lawfully on the market in other parts of the United Kingdom uh, can then be uh, freely uh, imported into Northern Ireland. Thank you for that. And just, just one final question, if I may, Chair. And this is to all the panel. I'd like every individual to answer this in some, in some regard. And three aspects. Are you all aware that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom? Are you also aware that whenever we voted to leave, we voted to leave the European Union, we being members of the United Kingdom? And what do I tell one of my constituents or thousands of my constituents who voted to leave? What do I tell them now? Sir, if we'd, uh, Katie, do you want to kick off on that one because it's a sort of political nuance from Northern Ireland, so you can handle that one? I don't know if there's too much nuance there. I mean, yes, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Uh, yes, the UK as a whole voted to leave, but Northern Ireland voted to remain with a majority of 56%. Yeah, but just, just, and just to your Northern Ireland is outside of the European Union. Yeah, but, but just if, you, if I may come back to you. Just one moment, yeah. Uh, we are part of the United Kingdom, irrespective of how many people voted to leave or voted to stay. We're part of the United Kingdom, so if the United Kingdom voted to leave, we leave. It didn't say anything different in my ballot paper. I'm sure the rest of the people in this room had said the same thing, unless mine was different. So we voted to leave. The United Kingdom voted to leave. Northern Ireland is outside of the European Union. Okay, thank you. Uh, David? Apologies, I thought I might have been on mute. Um, I don't think in all the discussions I have had about Northern Ireland that it has ever uh, been a question to myself or those I've been engaging with as to whether uh, which way the vote went, uh, which way the vote went in different places, or what the status of Northern Ireland is within the UK. The points I was I have been making are about the fact that you can be within a within a country and there be trade barriers that that is actually common within countries to do that. It is actually fairly common that you can uh, end up following regulations of a of an of another country. Um, these are political issues and political choices that uh, that ha that have to be made. I've made my points my my position clear that. Uh, a, a Conservative government, oddly enough, not uh, one led by uh, Theresa May, um, assigned a, a, a deal which I do regard as uh, flawed. I regarded it as flawed at the, uh, at the time, but yeah, that was what the government uh, signed up to. But I think that it requires a serious political discussion because it is not that there is any simple answer to how to reconcile the question of uh, regulations and borders. There has never been since 2016, and there still isn't a, a simple answer to that. But I do think we need a proper political discussion and that the, uh, the treaty was uh, passed through with, what, seven hours of discussion I saw today in Parliament, and that was clearly not sufficient. Okay, thanks. Martin? Yes, I, I think the way I put it, probably, I hope accurately, uh, is that Northern Ireland is, is only partly out of the European Union, uh, and it remains partly inside it. Uh, and the, the, 
in one sense, it's completely out in the sense that no longer do voters in Northern Ireland uh, have the right to influence uh, policies and, and laws of the European Union by participating, um, nor, nor can its government representatives uh, participate in the making and shaping of those laws. Uh, it, it's partly out in another sense, uh, in that large areas of, the, of EU law no longer apply. For example, uh, single market rules on services uh, don't apply. However, uh, in the area of single market uh, rules and laws on goods and the associated treaty provisions, um, for example, on the free movement of goods, um, those continue to apply to and within Northern Ireland. Uh, they apply as if Northern Ireland was still a member state. The legal mechanisms are, are identical um, in that the courts of Northern Ireland, uh, when interpreting these laws, um, would make preliminary references to the Luxembourg Court on points of difficulty or doubt, um, uh, and uh, their rulings are the ruling of the Luxembourg Court is binding um, in the same way uh, as if we were still a member state. So uh, I would say, uh, whatever the, you know, the reasons why we've got here, um, Northern Ireland has not yet completed the process of leaving the European Union. Uh, it is still in partially and in important respects. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you, Chair. Thanks very much, uh, Anna? Yes, um, while I will not address the political kind of side of this question, I will say this. The protocol does state very clearly that Northern Ireland is part, an integral part of UK's customs territory, although, as we very well know, other provisions of the protocol give it a dual status from or since 2016 it was it was clear that there are only three places that if you have divergence which is something that we wanted from the beginning um, to, to be free to strike uh, our own trade deals and so on that the the border in a way needs to be somewhere and there were only three places or the variation of these three places where the border was was could have been been placed I think I will very much stress what David said there were no easy, clear, simple solutions here. It was always going to be an imperfect solution because nothing like this, you know, there, there are no off-the-shelf models, there are no uh, simple solutions here. So we ended up with a protocol uh, and now trying to see how we can work and make the provisions and the implementation of the protocol uh, more flexible, but this was never going to be in any way easy or, or, uh, or uh, a solution that satisfies uh, everyone. That was just not possible. Okay. Thanks, Anna. Gemma? Gemma? Thanks, Chair. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can, Gemma. Thanks, and thanks to the panel. And I know that um, Keith is concerned about what to tell his constituents. Um, I'm also concerned about what to tell mine because the majority of them voted to remain. But I just have one question for Katie. And Katie, um, it's notable today in your survey that most thought that there were economic opportunities for the North in the protocol. Um, how do you think we can start to build on that majority? Uh, so this is the question of whether Northern Ireland can potentially have the best of both worlds. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that I, I don't think it's too controversial to say that if the majority of 
businesses and in the UK as a whole could have no trade frictions on, on movement of goods uh, with the EU, that they would be very glad of that. Um, and that is, of course, what Northern Ireland has with respect to goods as a result of the protocol. Um, but of course, it's more complicated than that. And uh, there's the fundamental uh, necessity for, I think, the full economic opportunities of the protocol um, can be seized upon, such as they exist, is the question of um, stability and certainty. And you yourselves have heard how often that request is made by businesses. It's been made for a long time. Um, and it's having to be repeated. Um, and the degree to which the UK-EU relationship is one of current uh, levels of distrust and still quite a lot of uh, bargaining and, and, and politicking going on in that relationship, that really doesn't is not um, conducive to creating the kind of environment for business and indeed for, for politics in which then um, those economic opportunities can be seized Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Philip. Yeah, thank, thank you, uh, Chair. I mean, and just in terms of coming in at the beginning, I just want to kind of elaborate on Anna's uh, closing remarks about, you know, this is not easy and has never been done before. Uh, and I think it's important, you know, even though it may be uh, very repetitive to just put that on record that, you know, th this discussion about the protocol is because of Brexit uh, and in particular it's because of the hard Brexit forced uh, upon us by the Tories and the DUP. And, you know, all of this discussion about the democratic deficit, I, I think it's important to remember that the majority of people in the North didn't vote or support uh, Brexit. And, 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 and just because you make your argument forcefully or uh, loudly or arrogantly, as perhaps some of the committee members have done to this point, doesn't mean, as was proven in a court case earlier on today, that your argument actually is right or, or, or stacks up. Uh, so I, I think that uh, those points are important. Just in terms of following on from uh, Gemma, in terms of the survey, I mean, I haven't obviously looked through all of it, but the headline points, so if I could maybe ask Katie, in terms of more input from stakeholders into the operation of the protocol, how do you think that would perhaps change uh, people's opinions on it? And then, you know, if most people, I suppose, support businesses uh, when, when they're talking in relation to the protocol, maybe more over other groups. Uh, so, I mean, do you think that uh, the vast majority of business representatives want to make the protocol work? And then separately, maybe to David uh, and or Anna, in terms of uh, the Swiss-style SPS uh, equivalence deal, you know, how would that help with the problems we are experiencing and, and why, in your opinion, do you think that the British government are actively blocking it? And then, just I mean, I sit obviously also in the Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs Committee and, and we're particularly worried about the impact of the Australian Free, tree, free Trade Agreement with uh, farmers. So, I mean, in your opinion, what kind of damage could that deal do to local farmers here pushing them out of, uh, potentially pushing them out of the British market, and also any future free tree agreements that are also likely to cause more damage to local exports. Um, I'm happy to come in um, first. Yes, uh, uh, yeah. Um, 
So I, I don't want to say things that I don't have evidence to say. So with respect to the, pro, the poll, of course, we didn't ask people um, what type of input they want to see. Um, so, but I can refer to um, a report that I published uh, with my colleague David Fenmore and others last year around meeting the challenges um, for governance for Northern Ireland post-Brexit, post-protocol. Um, and just one element that is relevant there and could still be exploited is, of course, the Joint Consultative Working Group as a new institution, UK-EU institution, for operating the protocol. Um, and the way that it has been developed is, is, uh, is a sort of a minimalist model, if you like, at the moment. So it's basically involving UK-EU officials, although there, um, there is an invitation to NI officials. Um, but there's plenty more scope in that for being more imaginative um, uh, around how Northern Ireland officials, but also Northern Ireland business, Northern Ireland um, elected representatives, Northern Ireland um, civic leaders, how they may feed in JCWG. Because it's important that they that advice that goes from that group, which meets weekly, into the specialized committee will be the type of thing that informs the decisions, uh, sorry, the recommendations made by the specialized committee. And this comes back to the point that um, Mr. Alistair was talking about earlier, i.e. the degree to which they are even aware of the possible implications of these amended uh, regulations and directives on Northern Ireland. So there is, there is plenty of scope and in that large report I make 80 recommendations as to what what else might be done but that's just one little thing to, to uh, note um, and your question around the majority of businesses again I don't have um, evidence to say the majority of businesses but what um, are supportive of the protocol but it is very clear I mean um, overwhelmingly as I mentioned before they are looking for stability and certainty for agreements for clarity for, for information and Anna will attest to this as well um, and it's um, a possibly a good point at which to mention of course article 6 of the protocol charging the joint committee with responsibility for both UK and EU using best endeavours to respect Northern Ireland's integral place in the internal market of the UK, and of course in the UK Internal Market Act, which has also been mentioned here, section 46 for the UK government itself to act with special regard to Northern Ireland's place in the internal market. If they did that, then we could have a situation which we know from polling evidence um, over the past few years that the majority of people in Northern Ireland want, and that is minimal mm -hmm. friction on either the Irish land border or the Irish sea border. And it's only through, um, you know, working to that end, uh, avoiding the hard Irish land border, and minimizing the impact of the protocol and movement of goods across the Irish sea. And then we get the best um, position for Northern Ireland's business. Okay. Anna, do you want to come in there? Uh, yes, of course. Um, in terms of a Swiss style, uh, SPS agreement. Uh, yes, that would uh, eliminate a number of checks. According to EU estimates, it's about 80% of checks uh, required. It would simplify things. You would not necessarily need to provide, well, you would not have border checks uh, for a lot of the products. You would not necessarily need to provide the certificate. Uh, some of these products that we're talking about that, that are banned or could potentially be banned would not be banned. But there is also the second side or the, the other side of this of the Swiss style agreement, meaning the Switzerland 
follows EU rules uh, with, uh, as far as I understand, only a very limited impact on these rules in terms of uh, what what it can do once the EU has passed its rules. So the, uh, the Swiss are aligned with EU rules on that. And that obviously, you know, one of the one of the difficulties that we keep having, uh, not only with the protocol, but with Brexit in general, is those these hard choices, these trade-offs. Yes, you you have a solution here, but this is the consequence. And I think, you know, th this is why we keep uh, kind of struggling with these issues is that it would solve some problems, but it would potentially create a, a, another level of problems. One of the kind of solutions that are maybe not on the table, but let's say table adjacent is, is this Swiss-style agreement with an opt-out clause, meaning that at the point where the UK wants to diverge in terms of rules and regulations uh, because it's signing an agreement with someone else or for some other reason, uh, it might it, it could potentially then opt out from this Swiss-style veteran agreement, but it still means accepting EU rules for the duration of of, of this agreement being in place, which is um, well, which is which is which is a, a, a trade-off in, in that respect. So I, I, you know, I think it's not. Unfortunately, it's not a discussion about technical solutions and what's possibly poss possible from a technical perspective. It's a discussion about uh, where we want to be politically, and and this makes it in, in incredibly uh, incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging. On the Australia one, I would, I would just say, and I think uh, I'm sure David will add to this, so I will just very briefly say that we're still waiting to fully understand how imports from countries where the UK signed a trade agreement will enter Northern Ireland if they're not going through GB. We have some guidance. That guidance is not entirely clear. There's a typo in that guidance, so which makes me feel that this is potentially not the final version of that guidance. Uh, and we're still trying to understand how it's going to work if, for example, the UK has an agreement with Australia, but the EU doesn't yet. If there's the gap, how will these imports be treated in Northern Ireland? So I think this is a very um, important question, and we don't fully have an answer yet. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Alicia? Chair, okay. You able to hear me, Chair? Yeah, got you. I felt you were over late. I thought very welcome here this afternoon. Uh, very, very interesting listening to your comments on that as well, too. It always intrigues me, you know, uh, when I hear people commenting on democracy or the lack of democracy. Uh, probably it's something we're well used to here in the Ireland of Ireland, whether we go back to the Active Union of 1801 or the, the division of Ireland in the first place, democracy was always ignored. They never had the permission of the Irish people at any time. No more than leaving uh, the EU has at the present time. And not only for the majority of people who live in the north of Ireland, but without doubt, by far the majority of people that live on the island of Ireland wish to remain within the EU. Uh, and that's quite clear. But notwithstanding that, given the rules as they are currently, uh, the UK voted to leave the EU. The UK also elected its government, which is the British government at the present time, who, on behalf of those same people, negotiated an agreement with the EU uh, so that, uh, in itself, the British government were given that permission. And, and negotiating that agreement, we are in a situation now where we have to deal with a protocol.
a protocol where that same government have negotiated it, in my opinion, they have totally dragged their feet in the implementation of the protocol. So to ask all of the panel, panel members just in relation to that, um, uh, to what extent do you think is there um, reluctance and the implementation of the protocol creating many problems uh, for for people, uh, and even right down to the, this whole issue of identity politics and elections as well too. Uh, by far, I think the greater part of businesses, uh, from what I see and understand anyway, uh, that they are the very people who are probably coping with the problem and dealing with it very successfully. And here on the island of Ireland itself, there's a lot of evidence at the present time that because people now are identifying suppliers here on the island, and only yesterday, again, uh, a flower production uh, company here in the north of Ireland uh, that is supplying uh, its flour to bakeries and that uh, within the 26th county. So it has its positives for us ourselves. So to what extent, as I say, do you think is it that reluctance on the part of the British government and implementing an agreement that they made on behalf of all of the people of the UK uh, that has given rise to many of the problems that we're faced with uh, at the present time? Okay, thank you. Uh can I start with David on that one, please? Then uh, David, Martin, uh, Anna, and then uh, Katie. If you've got uh, some comments on that. Uh, thank, th th thank you, thank you, Chair. Um, well, I, I have said uh, f fairly, fairly frequently that I think there's a major problem with the UK government having uh, signed a, a treaty that uh, implies checks and then uh, kind of not actually being honest about what it was that they have signed up to and have been quite obstructive in the implementation i'd like to I, I i pay tribute to northern ireland businesses northern ireland business association so i think have had to bear the brunt of this and have done a fantastic job and have worked ceaselessly in in uh, in doing so and i don't think they've re really received very much help from the, the the uk government which i think is trying to have it uh, all, all different ways is trying to uh, you know, on, on the one hand, it, uh, it it says it doesn't really want the protocol, but on the other hand, when actually when push comes to shove, because um, of uh, the relationship it wants, particularly with the United States, it does want the the protocol. And I think that is actually quite dangerous behaviour to to suggest. On the one hand, you might you you might walk away from it, and on the other hand, in your actions, that you won't walk away from it. So I think that is very that is very difficult to to work with. We. I, don't, I think we'll struggle to make progress unless the UK government can be more open about uh, how it intends to uh, take forward the, the, the protocol to work really with, with, with all concern because there are, there, there are numerous issues and yes, many of them do apply to um, East-West ties, but there are issues as well relating to, to North-South business ties. Um, there, you know, there are issues with, the, uh, with, with, with services. We very rarely talk about, about services. Um, and even you know, on, in areas like um, free trade agreements, because that was, I think, that was a little bit of a holdover from last time. Uh, if Australia sends a lot more uh, beef and lamb to uh, Great Britain, there is a, a strong chance that the uh, that Northern Ireland businesses will be some of those more Northern Ireland farmers will be some of those who lose out. And I know there was a letter sent recently by the uh, Agriculture uh, Minister from, uh, Nor from Northern Ireland on that subject. So I think there is a lot that you know that the UK government needs to do to help put right is about being open and about honesty about what it's 
what it signed and what the implications are. And I think without that, it will be very difficult to resolve that. I hope that we can resolve it for the sake, as I say, of the businesses and the communities who have worked so hard to, to make the arrangements work. Thank you, David. But in your answer, just could I also ask you just as a follow-up to that, do you think it's any alternative to a protocol? I think that, as Anna has already said, this is a very difficult, you know, this, we're on uncharted uh, territory in terms of that there need to be, either we have to align in some ways, and we could do that in food and drink, or we are going to have to have checks somewhere. We can, over time, perhaps build up more, more trust, but ultimately there has to be something, there is going to have to be an agreement for how uh, trade uh, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the EU, and also movement of, of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland operates under under Brexit. So there has to be something that looks a little bit like the protocol. You know, it could be varied in different ways, but there is going to have to be some form of, almost certainly some form of treaty and some form of supporting political uh, agreement. And I, personally, I think one of the issues is that there was no form of political agreement really running alongside the uh, the protocol to explain really to everybody what the protocol meant and you know what the implicate what the implications are and to make sure that more people were comfortable with it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Matthew, can you come in? And can we, I don't want to foreshorten you, but we've got some more people to listen to after this as well. Okay, well, Mr. Alistair had a very long time to expound on his very particular views, uh, so I will ask. Uh, you're uh, my indulgence. Is that what you're going to say, Matthew? Uh, yes. As, uh, as pithily as I can, Chair, thank you for your indulgence. Yeah. Um, uh, mind you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Alistair was here in the beginning of the session. I see he's left now. Um, yeah. can, I, uh, can I just ask Martin, first of all, um, Martin Howe at QC. Martin, um, you um, wrote, uh, I think, a number of pieces in uh, late 2019 when the withdrawal agreement was updated by Boris Johnson saying that this deal was tolerable. Um, what changed? Uh, the, the words I used um were very carefully chosen. Um, I, I thought it was tolerable, uh, really, when you looked at the alternatives in the political situation. Uh, I, I can say personally, uh, I, I, I've never liked this deal. Um, and indeed, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, is the worst aspect of it, in my view. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, the, 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 the reason I wrote those articles was that perhaps the alternative would be a complete collapse of the entire Brexit. Um, uh, it, it, uh, the government chose to go down the route of doing this deal uh, with the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, and that in effect became the only route, however imperfect, out of the European Union. Okay. So that, that's my personal answer to that question. Fair enough. Having said that it was imperfect but better than the alternatives. Could you please elaborate on your alternative as of now to the provisions in the Northern Ireland Protocol? Uh, I, th I think the fundamental problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, as I've explained, is the application of uh, European Union law inside Northern Ireland. Uh, and that, it seems to me, is the feature that should be removed. Now, 
you then come on to the question of, of how do you control the flow of goods across the border, the land border, which of course is the, the, the root of the whole problem. Uh, but you know, there are other ways of doing it. For example, if you take medicines, um, now medicines are entirely controlled in their distribution channels. They can only be stocked by authorized pharmaceutical wholesalers uh, and, and retail pharmacists and so forth. So you're not going to get people with, you know, barrel loads of uh, prescription medicines carrying them across the border and, and infecting the European single market with drugs they don't want. Uh, so you can have other systems of control um, on, on businesses that, that can result uh, in, uh, in, in preventing the flow of non-conforming goods going across the border and without the need, I think, for physical infrastructure on the border. Um, I, I mean, this sort of idea that if you have put a man with a pole, you know, with a, a peak cap and a, puts a pole across the road, that that's some sort of effective control on the movement of goods is, is rather fantastical in, in current conditions and the way that um, customs and regulatory controls are, are in fact implemented. So is what you're saying that there shouldn't be uh, Northern Ireland should not be, for the purposes of regulating uh, the movement of goods or indeed for customs control, Northern Ireland should be in a, precisely the same position as the rest of the United Kingdom. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I, I, indeed, I would like to see that. But what I think you could say um, is that uh, uh, one, one could assist, if you like, the European Union uh, in its desire to prevent the importation of either goods which have not paid proper tariffs or goods that don't comply with its laws um, by uh, having obligations on businesses in Northern Ireland not to export south of the border um, unless the goods are compliant with EU law and Irish Republic law. Okay, so what you've just said is that there should be an obligation on economic, a legal obligation on economic actors in Northern Ireland, which would seem to contradict the first part of your answer, which is that Northern Ireland has to be in precisely the same position as the rest of the UK. If you think there could, should be a legal obligation on economic operators in Northern Ireland around how they export uh, goods uh, on the island of Ireland, doesn't that mean that they are going to be treated differently? Uh, well, only, in, only if they choose to export goods across the border. Uh, I, I, I mean, you could have the same obligation. On, uh, I mean, if businesses in Great Britain um, send goods across um, and through across the land border uh, into the Irish Republic, you could have the same obligation on them. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the question of you only become subject to the obligation if you choose to become involved in exporting goods. Wouldn't that? uh, that's the important point. So internal manufacture, internal production, marketing and consumption of goods is, is outside the ambit of EU law. Okay, to go, uh, I'm not sure that uh, makes sense, uh, to be honest, uh, but uh, to me at least. But uh, if we go back to your statement earlier on that Northern Ireland remains in part in the European Union, would you accept that Northern Ireland's constitutional position as actually uh, confirmed today uh, in the High Court here, is that Northern Ireland remains in the United Kingdom? 
unless or until the majority votes for it to leave the United Kingdom? Um, can I say, I, I've seen news reports of today's judgment, but uh, I, I'm not sure there's, certainly if the transcript of, of the full reasoning is available, I, I haven't seen it. Um, so I, I can only make uh, limited comments on it. Uh, and I, I, I mean, in one sense, it confirmed what I thought to be the position, which was that the uh, Articles of Union of 1800 are indeed overridden by the 2020 Withdrawal Agreement Act and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, on the question of does it, uh, yes, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom and it remains part of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, however, um, it, it, it does seem to me that its constitutional status in the United Kingdom is altered by the protocol because its previous constitutional status uh, under the Articles of Union involved um, uh, the free movement of goods, uh, 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 indeed, and, and without customs controls and without regulatory barriers uh, to and from other parts of the United Kingdom. Uh, I believe that is a, a constitutional matter because it is uh, it actually is an important aspect of both the Articles of Union uh, between England and Scotland uh, and uh, with Great Britain and Ireland uh, to achieve uh, an internal market and, and having a single external customs system without internal barriers. Okay. So that aspect of the Constitution uh, 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 has been altered in relation. You, you just said regulatory barriers between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Is it therefore your uh, view that the uh, checks for sanitary and phytosanitary products uh, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland that have existed uh, for the entire history, uh, uh, since as long as those checks have been mandated, that they were also a constitutional uh, violation of Northern Ireland's place in the UK? No, 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 I don't think so. I, I'd actually, I've, I've, I've written on this subject to some depth. Um, checks on, for example, uh, infected cattle um, passing from the islands of Great, the island of Great Britain to the island of Ireland are um, a, a, a rational means of preventing uh, the, the flow of um, infections. Uh, and uh, I mean, were if such checks are imposed, and sometimes they are, if there's sort of foot and mouth outbreak between England and the Isle of Wight, that doesn't affect the constitutional position of the Isle of Wight as being part of England. You uh, just so said I, that I checks to prevent animal and for animal health purposes are rational and do not affect the constitutional status. Isn't that literally what the protocol is? No, 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 no. I think that this is a sleight of hand. What the protocol is talking about on, on things like SPS checks and things on sausages is nothing like those sort of uh, uh, live infection control. I mean, in fact, the, um, the powers of the original uh, Stormont Parliament uh, included, uh, they, they were restricted from imposing generally prohibitions uh, on importations from uh, Great Britain but it specifically included health powers. They were, they were allowed to, to do that. Um, so, so this has been constitutionally uh, accepted um, for, for, for a very long time. But what we're talking about here uh, are, are not, um, you know, controls on chilled meat have got nothing to do with, with preventing uh, diseases, cattle diseases flowing from 
one island to another. Uh, they're there for economic purposes um, in order to, um, in order to provide a restriction, uh, largely which allows um, EU producers who don't face such barriers an economic advantage. So I, I don't regard those as legitimately in the proto uh, protocol, and I do think that introducing them does affect the constitutional place of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. Since the checks already existed, I'm not sure I agree, but on, just on the, on the Act of Indeed. Union, um, if I could, um, Article 3 of the Act of Union, you have talked a little bit, uh, and I know in the past, and, and, you, and you've been party to, to uh, applications um, to the court on various uh, issues of some, I think, believe most of which have been rejected, but Article 3 of the Act of Union um, uh, specifies uh, very briefly that um, uh, the said United Kingdom be represented in one and the same Parliament to be styled the United Parliament to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. If Article 3 of the Act of Union provides for one Parliament alone, wasn't the creation of the Northern Ireland Parliament in 1921, indeed of the Scottish Parliament uh, in 1999, uh, and other devolved assemblies, didn't that violate the Act of Union too? Doesn't it imply that the Act of Union is one of a number of constitutional statutes which evolves over time? Uh, uh, perhaps we're talking at slightly different purposes. Um, I, I don't think the establishment of devolved, whether the Parliament of Northern Ireland or the Scottish Parliament or the, the Welsh Assembly um, violates the Acts of Union. Uh, my comment is related to the issue of whether or not the Northern Ireland Protocol affects a constitutional change on the position of Northern Ireland. Um, it, it definitely overrides the Act of Union. My point, and in my view, does result in a constitutional change. My point to you was not that uh, the, was not about. Um, uh, Article 3 uh, in and of itself, it was about the idea that the Act of Union is uh, totally uh, unamendable and that amending it changes uh, the substantial constitutional position of the United Kingdom. And given that that has happened multiple times, as we said in court today, surely that is uh, something of a straw man. Um, I, I think there, with respect, there are different points there. The, the, the Act of Union is amendable, and that, that is clearly the case. Uh, and uh, if it is amended, and depending on how it is amended, um, that, that may result in a constitutional change, because it is a constitutional document. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thanks, Chairman. Pat? Chair, you'll be pleased to know mine will be small. And I want to thank everyone there for their information that they gave to me. Suppose we have to look at the problems as a good point of the protocol. I don't think there's anyone in Northern Ireland that wanted any sort of protocol, but as already been stated, the majority of people here did vote for Brexit. Well, Brexit. We have what we have here, and we have to look at it. Can the panel tell me, can you comment on how you believe the UK government could or should apply the financial assistance powers uh, provided, which you've already alluded to at the start? But I want to bring it in with with the comments on whether Section 46 of the UK Internal Market Act contradicts the provision of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And last but not least, 
the protocol is here. Uh, we fool people. We're telling people that we're going to be able to change that. It's here. It's an international agreement. And I want to know, can the panel tell me how we can make that work to the benefits of everyone here in Northern Ireland? Because let's speak about the benefits and not the negativities of it. Please. Okay. Sir, can I ask anybody to uh, put forward some of the benefits that they see from the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol that they, they can evidence? Thanks very much indeed. Anybody, please? What's your answer, Paul? No... <laughs> I'm happy to go first, Chair. Yes, that. please, David. Well, I, I have contacted by businesses to discuss issues around Brexit and the question, you know, several of them it has come up. So if I if I move to Northern Ireland, will many of my problems uh, be, be resolved? And I've been able to say yes, you can, th those companies who, for example, were uh, using a warehouse within uh, Great Britain for uh, supplying the EU, if they're to move that, if they were to move a where said warehouse into, uh, into Northern Ireland, then they, into the, as, as things stand, they are going to be able to su supply uh, both both the EU um, and Great Britain. The, the problem, as I think somebody has already mentioned, is if they're not sure that that might all change next week, then that's not a great basis for an investment decision. But that 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 opportunity is there, and I can I can assure you that businesses are interested in that opportunity if they believe there is stability. And I think that, that comes back to the first part of the question: Can you make can you make the Northern Ireland Protocol? Uh, Better, I think it requires uh, new di new dialogue uh, within Northern Ireland and with the the UK government uh, to to basically look at some of these problems, not to address, not to come up with fantasy so solutions where the EU is suddenly going to trust us not to have any borders. That's not going to happen, but that there are things that c that can be done if there's an open and honest uh, d discussion. Maybe it's not so much of a problem to align in some areas with the EU in some food and drink areas, which would remove a lot of the checks. Um, you know, the, the medicines, I think, is close to, close to being resolved anyway. I think a lot can be resolved, um, but it needs that kind of proper political discussion. And then I think you can potentially see a, a, bit, a business benefit as well. And uh, for, the, for those who might want to see it, and I was uh, thinking about this uh, earlier, um, you may actually find that if uh, businesses from Manchester or London started to set up in, in Belfast, it would actually strengthen their, their support for, uh, for, the, for the Union of Great, of Great Britain and, uh, and, and Northern Ireland. But at the moment, Things are too unst unstable for that. For that, but in terms of the way the UK government is approaching this, but I think there are opportunities. But undoubtedly, there are huge challenges as well. Okay, uh, Katie or Anna, I can just add uh, one point. I agree 100% on uh, stability and certainty. Investment decisions are made well in advance. And not knowing what's going to happen in Northern Ireland next year is not helpful. If there's one thing apart from stability and certainty that the government can do to maximize opportunities, I'll say that, although I'm not sure if this is the right term, is provide more and clearer, clearer guidance on how things operate at the moment under the protocol. It's still, the devil is in very much in the details. It's still so much more difficult to find information about how things work in practice in Northern Ireland than it is in, in GP. 
clearer guidance, more more um, uh, availability. I mean, you have a second parent or, or TSS, but the fact that you can't get answers about what's happening in Northern Ireland on customs from HMRC, because HMRC refers you to TSS and doesn't want to take questions necessarily on Northern Ireland, that's not helpful. So more guidance, more information, that would help. Okay, thanks very much today. Katie? Yeah, I would um, underscore what Anna has said there. That's very much a, a, a pressing concern from business. I mean, in terms of the benefits of the protocol, it's, it's a difficult one because you're thinking, well, what's the counterfactual? You know, is it is it that there was no Brexit at all, in which case we would continue to have um, free movement of goods, services, people, and capital across all our borders? Um, obviously, that's the protocol, as with Brexit, brings frictions. Um, or is the counterfactual the possibility of an Irish land border? And if we recognise now, um, uh, in, in the, at the very least, what a customs and regulatory border means, um, surely this does underscore the difficulties that we would have faced if we were to try to be managing this across the land border, uh, recognising the seriousness with which um, the EU um, enforces its laws and wants to see it uh, those those rules applied uh, one small question is you know of those 300 legislative instruments which of those does northern ireland not want to follow or does it want to diverge from um, uh, you know if, if we're in a different situation outside of the protocol but i would stress and you'd expect me to do this as a political sociologist i mean those questions around uh, democratic deficit scrutiny um, uh, and governance, those are questions that are going to become increasingly significant um, if and when those practical concerns around the operation of the protocol are addressed. Okay, thanks, Katie. Martin, just to finish up. Well, yes, um, you've invited me to say what are the good things about protocol where <laughs> I, I, I can't. <laughs> can't frankly see much that's good in it. Uh -huh. um, uh, obviously, what is touted as its principal benefit uh, is the ability of businesses in Northern Ireland to export into the EU single market without barriers. Uh, and indeed, that, that is um, uh, an aspect of the protocol. But uh, e even that is inhibited. And, and the example, uh, coming back to the example of medicines regulation, which I gave, Although the, the protocol applies the European Union's medicines regulation and medicines directive to Northern Ireland, the Annex 2 contains a couple of um, very specific exclusions uh, which uh, do not permit businesses in Northern Ireland um, to act as the... Um, to, to act... Uh, as uh, uh, they're, they're not, in, in other words, you set up a drugs a pharmaceutical company in Northern Ireland. It is not, it's excluded from being treated as if it were in the European Union for the purposes of, of those uh, regulations. So you can't apply for a European Union central authorization from an address in Northern Ireland. Um, you, you can't be a qualified person for the purposes of these regulations uh, if you're re resident in Northern Ireland. Um, so e even in that respect, uh, it is uh, flawed. And of course, uh, I, I agree with the point David made that uh, in order for 
uh, businesses to take advantage of this system, they would have to have um, uh, confidence in the stability of this scenario. Uh, and uh, my own feeling is that it is very much a very long way uh, from being a stable situation. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. Um, Tim, that's quite a long evidence session, and I thank you all very much indeed for your forbearance, and thank you very much indeed for sort of giving the full answers that you have indeed as well. But just finally, on behalf of the committee, may I thank uh, Kitty, Anna, David and Martin, and uh, no doubt we've still got a long way to go on this. Um, sorry for if, if you saw me looking down at my screen, but I've just seen David Frost's comment that co it's coming out about sort of the chilled meats piece, but I haven't yet seen Maria Sefcovic's piece as well. So we're, we're continuing as we go on with the Great Sausage War. But thank you very much indeed, and thank you very much indeed for your evidence. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. Uh, team, if we're moving on to the next item, it's uh, again some more evidence on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's focusing on Article 5. The customs and movements of goods. Uh, we've got Christian Shanker and Robert coming on. Could I ask them to come into Starleaf, please? Have I got? So, Christian Shanker, Robert, Steve Aiken here. Sorry, look, apologies for uh, being slightly delayed in, or sort of quite a lot delayed in bringing you on for the evidence session. Uh, we've had quite a long session. We've already discussed quite a few of the issues with our previous uh, uh, expert witnesses on the protocol. And for that, I apologise. But uh, welcome, and you're very welcome indeed. Um, Christian and Shankar, it's good to see you again, and we look forward to what you're going to say. Um, team, I just want to say the session has been recorded by Hansard. Uh, uh, Peter's uh, briefing notes at page 130. A briefing paper from uh, Mr Lowe is at page 132. And a background note for the Trader Support Service at pages 135. Hopefully, uh, you will have all had a chance to listen to the uh, earlier session. You're welcome to add any opinion or any issues you've picked up on, on today. But to begin with, can I ask each witness to make an opening statement of about five minutes? And then I would ask Mr Benson and Mr Singham to begin with first. So, Christian, over to you, please. Uh, thank you, Mr Chairman. Uh, a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks to you and the committee for the... Uh, for inviting me to say a few words uh, to provide members with an overview of the Trader Support Service. Um, as the committee considers the Northern Ireland Protocol and Article 5 on customs and the movement of goods, TSS provides practical insight into the movement of those goods from GB to NI throughout the period that the protocol has been in operation. And it's from this practical perspective that we provide our inputs today. So, uh, within, uh, with six months of live operation, we're able to draw on data on the movement of goods and, and through interactions with thousands of traders during this period, uh, we can provide insight into how businesses are interacting with both our system and the, and the new requirements arising from the protocol. Uh, we're incredibly proud of the progress we've made to date. TSS has been rolled out and delivered at pace from a contract award in September uh, to live operation at the start of this year. Uh, all of that under COVID-19 restrictions, uh, with, with most of the team actually ne never having met. Um, TSS is working. Uh, the role of TSS is to make sure that trade between GB and NI is as free-flowing as possible, consistent with the legal requirements of the Northern Ireland Protocol, and to make sure that NI businesses have unfettered access to GB. Uh, and this is what we're doing. Uh, we now have around 39,000 businesses registered 
uh, 59% of which are GB-based businesses, uh, with around 35% of uh, the, the, the registrations occurring since the 1st of January, which I think demonstrates the market recognises that TSS is working and is responding. Uh, we've seen around 1.9 million declarations raised, uh, enabling the movement of over, well, nearly 800,000 uh, goods consignments. Uh, and this number increases week on week, uh, a steady increase. So TSS is enabling the flow of goods into Northern Ireland on a daily and, and weekly basis. Uh, we recognise, obviously, that the rules are new and that TSS is a new service to implement those rules. And we've worked hard to educate and support traders in both GB and NI. Uh, to date, we've made over 100,000 outbound calls uh, to provide direct support to businesses, uh, with around double, uh, with, which is around double the number of calls we've actually received. Um, so it shows the efforts we're making to ensure that businesses are able to get on with trading. Senior members of our team conducted over 85 seminars with and held over 250 engagements with businesses and trade bodies. Uh, those trade bodies combined representing over 5,000 businesses and organisations. We've created over 30 user guides, which have been downloaded 366,000 times from our Northern Ireland Customs and Trade Academy website. Our role is to support business in how they use the service and make it as simple as possible. Uh, as traders become more used to utilising the service um, and as we, we, as we implement further improvements, we, we expect to see uh, further uh, ease of use uh, and, and improvements in how traders interact with the service. Already, most trader interactions uh, with the service are digital. Uh, so 85% of those interactions coming via the website and being processed online in under 15 minutes. Uh, we're not complacent. We listen to traders and adapt to the experience of their life service, providing simplifications and guidance to support the flow of goods, <clears throat> as is demonstrated by our consignment first model for groupage and our transit service. Uh, TSS is an evolving service, um, so we, it was stood up in, a, in a, an incredibly short space of time, and we are regularly releasing greater functionality to expand and, and improve the service that we provide to traders. Um, we've shared a background note with the committee in advance of this session, which includes some trader experiences, together with feedback provided by users of the service, and I look forward to answering the committee's questions and providing further details. Thank okay. you. Thanks very much indeed. I'd, I'll just have two short questions, and I know time's moving on, but first of all, how much does it cost? So the, uh, the cost, so the, the HMRC uh, have procured uh, the, the overall service from the Fujitsu-led consortium. Uh, it is a, a publicly available uh, figure, which is 240 million pounds. That's for a two-year contract. Uh, HMRC have the option to extend that contract by uh, a further two years. Okay. And how many people do you employ doing all this? So uh, currently uh, around 900 people. Uh, so uh, 600, over 600 of those are, are contact centre agents, uh, various different uh, tiers of experience within the contact centre. Uh, the, the rest are people uh, engaged with the continued development of the programme, um, uh, the service management, 
um, and and uh, yeah, various other personnel from across the consortium. Okay, so I would be I would be correct in saying that since we've uh, since we the startup costs and everything involved since uh, sort of the protocols come into place, it's cost uh, it's already cost UK PLC uh, right about 120 million, and it's likely to cost 240 million over the first two years. 240 million for, for the for the stand-up of the service and the and the run of the service for two years. Okay, thanks. Okay. Okay, uh, Matthew. Uh, thank you very just, much. Sorry, um, excuse me. Sorry, sorry you've just you've about the other panel members. Oh, sorry. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry. Uh, sort of uh, apologies. Apologies. It's been one of those. It's been one of those days. Uh, sort of. Uh, Shankar, Robert, do you want to come in? Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman. Um, uh, yeah, I'm Shankar Singham. I am um, a, uh, a, a senior advisor on the uh, Trader Support Service. I lead the customs and trade um, policy area with Trader Support Service. My background is very much as an international trade and uh, customs regulatory competition uh, lawyer and, uh, uh, and with an economics background as well. Uh, I have in the past... Um, uh, uh, headed up the international trade uh, practices of two large global law firms um, and uh, bring that expertise to uh, to this um, uh, to the TSS. Uh, I've been involved in um, issues related to the Irish border um, and to the resolution of issues around uh, Brexit and Northern Ireland uh, for a number of years now, um, uh, starting off with work on um, uh, various attempts to find a solution to the Irish border a paper I wrote in 2017, um, uh, going through uh, an, an agreement that I proposed in 20, at the end of 2017, um, uh, the Malthouse Compromise, which included a number of members of Parliament to try to find a solution to the Irish border, including Nicky Morgan, um, uh, and uh, uh, led by uh, Kit Malthouse, uh, and most recently with the Alternative Arrangements Commission, where I chaired the technical panel. Uh, and uh, I and a team put together a, a proposal for alternative arrangements um, to the Irish, the then, the then Northern Ireland backstop. Uh, that, that work was led uh, on a parliamentary basis by Greg Hans and Nicky Morgan. Um, when TSS was established um, uh, and we brought together leading experts uh, on TSS um, uh, in order to give it the best chance of success, um, so um, I speak here both in the TSS capacity uh, and, and also in my sort of independent uh, trade expert capacity um, and uh, looking forward to your, to your questions. Okay, thanks very much, Lee. And Robert and Sam? Robert, please. I think Robert is muted and speaking, so I'm okay. happy for Robert to go first. I'm still going to go first, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Uh, my name is Robert Hardy, and Sam's still spotlighted, but uh, it's definitely me. Um, my name is Robert Hardy. I'm a former freight director of P&O Ferries. Uh, until 2017, I also ran the, well, I didn't also at the same time, but I ran the customs freight terminal at Port of Dover, uh, working on behalf of a, a company based in Newry, would you believe? So I'm no stranger to the, to the Northern Ireland shores. Um, in 2019, we formed the Customs Clearance Consortium, which was a, a specialist consortium uh, built up to cater for the additional volume of customs declarations created by Brexit. The, the consortium is not actually, as it might sound, a consortium of customs clearance agents, but rather a consortium of uh, 
logistics companies and traders who recognised that they would require customs formalities to be completed, and those include some very significant uh, food logistics uh, and general logistics operators based in Northern Ireland. Uh, I, I could list them, but it's probably inappropriate, and also some uh, some Northern Ireland-based traders. Uh, we, we like to think we're at the forefront of customs planning and customs processes. Uh, to that end, we were actually part of the design team, uh, and we are the customs intermediary engine underneath the trader support service. Um, so we help to design those flows to facilitate the smooth movement of, uh, of goods under the protocol. So we are kind of ganging up on Sam at the moment, so I'm sorry, Sam. Uh, I speak, though, as, as, a, as a speaker of, uh, sorry, as a founder of uh, the Customs Clearance Consortium, as a user of uh, Trader Support Service, as also a user of the Traces system for the SPS controls, and hats off to DERA for the work they're doing. They are walking the tightrope between compliance and practicality very well. Uh, and also as a representative of the CCC members, the Customs Clearance Consortium members who are based in Northern Ireland. I'll keep it short and sweet, but there was actually a comment earlier on about what, you know, what's good about it almost. Uh, there's been quite a major success recently for, uh, um, secured by the RHA, the Road Haulage Association, it, and only really possible because of the protocol. Uh, and in a nutshell, what, what, is one, what is one of the benefits of the protocol? Well, to the logistics industry, it's actually cheaper fuel, which is uh, rather a large win, to be fair. There, there, is a re, there is an essential user rebate in Europe for, uh, of, which is significant. It's 25 euro cents per litre in Belgium, for example, but you must be a member of the EU to qualify for this. The EU is allowed, although Northern Ireland clearly isn't a member of the EU, but because of their special status, they are allowing Northern Ireland-based transport companies to, benefit, to continue to benefit from that, uh, from that rebate, whereas GB-registered trucks cannot. And that's me. Hurrah. Oh, one more thing, sorry. Just in an attempt to win friends and influence people, I wish you all happy World Parliament Day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, team. Matthew? No, still, Thank you, Sam. I think oh, so sorry, Sam. Good. Sorry, sorry, Sam. <laughs> Thank you, and, and thank you, thank you, Chair, and thank you for inviting me. I, I speak as the one member of this panel not involved uh, oh, right. with, with the CSS, but, 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 but so, so I'm, I'm going to try and, in my introduction, draw maybe some of the themes that we've heard through the panel before, and also maybe expand the remit of the discussion slightly if people wish uh, to go there. And I think it's important to remember the, the fundamental starting point, which is that the UK has left the European Union, and that is inclusive of Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has left the European Union. What we are discussing is the ongoing relationship between the UK as a whole with the European Union, but in this respect, Northern Ireland's specific uh, circumstances. And the context here is that the British government decided to extricate Great Britain from the EU's customs and regulatory sphere whilst leaving Northern Ireland partially within it, particularly in respect of the movement of goods. And, and, and here the political context is that the British government prioritised regulatory flexibility and trade flexibility for Great Britain over the economic coherence of the United Kingdom and decided in favour of controls on check and checks on goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain as a compromise to avoid those controls and checks having to take place between Northern Ireland and Ireland. So, so my view looking at this now is, OK, so how do we make this work? And I have my preferences, and then I have what I think is perhaps realistic given the political circumstances. If we take, for example, the movement of products of animal origin from 
uh, Great Britain to Northern Ireland, my preference would be to prioritise the regulatory uniformity of the United Kingdom over Great Britain's flexibility to diverge in this space and bring Great Britain back into alignment with Northern Ireland via a Swiss-style veterinary SPS agreement. And this would not only benefit companies moving goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, but also food companies exporting from the UK to the EU in general. However, I appreciate that the British government does not share my view on this. It, it does want to prioritise this flexibility for Great Britain over the economic uniformity of the United Kingdom. So given that, do I think that there are other options available? Yes. I think what the UK has proposed in terms of equivalence could help reduce the levels of inspection on products of animal origin entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain quite substantially. And I also think proposed trusted trader schemes um, could help when it comes to allowing uh, restricted goods such as uh, processed meat uh, be, to, uh, being sold in Northern Ireland, it could allow that to happen. I mean, if we look at how the grace period actually functions, insofar as if you are sending, say, chilled sausages from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, you have to raise an export health certificate. It can only happen if it's going to be sold in a supermarket. It's subject to checks. We're all, we already sort of have an audited system that I think could just be made permanent in that respect. So, so I'm willing, very willing to look at compromises. I just want to help uh, where I can. One thing I would like to raise, and this is uh, something I raised in my written submission, and it's something that's under-discussed, is the impact of the Northern Ireland Protocol on Northern Ireland's trade with the rest of the world. So I'm not talking about the EU or Great Britain here, I'm talking with Australia, New Zealand, the US, whoever. And here I think the impact of Article 5 and also uh, the joint declaration by, 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 by the committee it's quite interesting because from an export perspective, Northern Ireland is very much covered by UK trade agreements. And I would actually argue that Northern Ireland exporters potentially in some instances have an advantage over Irish-based exporters because the UK rollover agreements in some cases are more accommodating than the original EU agreements, particularly when it comes to rules of origin and something called extended accumulation. They allow for EU originating components to be accounted as British for the purpose of, say, qualifying for the UK-South Korea trade agreement. So it may, might, in some instances, make more sense to export from Northern Ireland than the EU, because if you export from the EU, you can't account for UK inputs um, in the same way. But when it comes to imports, that's where it gets slightly tricky. And I would say you, Northern Ireland's ability to benefit from UK free trade agreements becomes more conditional in that the UK applied tariff can only be used by Northern Ireland based importers if A, you fulfill the not at risk criteria, but also B, you can demonstrate that the tariff applied under the UK regime is uh, no more, is under or uh, three percentage points, the, the difference between the EU's applied regime and the UK's applied regime is no greater than three percentage points. And in practice, this means that for agreements such as, for new agreements such as UK-Australia, where there isn't an EU agreement, equivalent agreement as a reference point, you are going to get circumstances where certain imports into Northern Ireland won't qualify for the UK's free trade agreements, whereas they would if they were imported into Great Britain. I'm thinking particularly of food. But there's a, uh, you know, and you can argue this from both directions. There's a, there's a, 
so potentially Northern Ireland based consumers will lose out if they're not able to access Australian products, for example, more cheaply, unlike uh, their great British uh, neighbours. But I suppose there's a producer side to this argument, which is if you approach this very cynically, and I don't and I don't advocate this, but Northern Ireland farmers, for example, will be able to benefit from UK free trade agreements, whereas not being exposed to competition from those countries, at least within the Northern Ireland market. However, I would acknowledge that they might face increased competition when selling into Great Britain. There's also an issue to do with TRQs that needs to be resolved, so tariff rate quotas. These are allowances for certain quantities of goods to enter the UK at a certain tariff rate. So, for example, X tons of lamb from New Zealand can enter at zero tariffs. And then if you, if you clear, if, if a greater amount than that specific tonnage uh, is imported over the course of a year, a much higher uh, tariff applies. And there is currently some confusion as to how this works in Northern Ireland, because going back to the point I made about the difference between the UK applied tariff and the EU applied tariff having to be no more than three percentage points for the importer in Northern Ireland to use the UK regimes, we have an issue in that EU tariff rate quotas do not apply in Northern Ireland. So the reference point from an, for, for, for a UK importer importing under a UK a Northern Ireland-based importer importing under a UK TRQ, the reference point for them would be the EU's MFN tariff, not the EU's uh, in-quota tariff if there is an equivalent quota because those quotas don't apply in Northern Ireland. So in, it de facto means that uh, importers into Northern Ireland can't use the UK's TRQs, which, which are included both in trade agreements but also on an MFN basis under the UK's WTO commitments. This is something I feel can be resolved and the UK is trying to resolve and I've written what I think the solution to this is in the written statement but I'm happy to go into it further and I will uh, leave it there having broadened out the discussion but appreciating that we might be going right back into the nitty gritty of the TSS. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Now Matthew. Thank you very much Chair and thank you all for your um, evidence and coming today. Um, I could just talk, um, turn to some of the TSS um, representatives today. Um, you give us a little bit of a flavour of it, but um, uh, would it be correct to say that clearly the protocol is a uh, Brexit creates a range of disruptions? The protocol is a novel, um, uh, is a novel set of arrangements uh, and involved new um, familiarisation and with new kinds of bureaucracy for people, particularly importing goods, um, moving goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. But would you say that in general? Um, uh, the um, familiarisation has led to a, uh, a, 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 a there has been a, a clear process of familiarisation since January uh, with um, uh, participants in the TSS. So that's to anyone from TSS. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that first of all. Um, so 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 yes, uh, the protocol has introduced uh, administration uh, that, that wasn't there previously. Um, yes, TSS has been up and running since uh, the 1st of January, um, and I think from the data uh, that we're seeing and also the, the qualitative uh, feedback uh, that, that we're receiving from traders, yes, we, we, we can say with some confidence that traders uh, are becoming more familiar uh, with, with, with how to uh, operate, uh, how to operate the, the, the service. Uh, we can see that, for instance, uh, in the uh, reduction of calls we're receiving to the contact centre. We can also see that in the, uh, in the gradual uptick of the, the customer satisfaction rates uh, that, that, that we record 
for both the digital interactions uh, and the telephone interactions as well. Uh, and we can also see it in, in, in some of the qualitative feedback uh, and, and very positive feedback that actually we receive every week uh, from, from traders thanking us uh, for the assistance we're providing. Uh, uh, some, of, some of which of that feedback uh, we, we have provided in, in our written okay. submission. How um, could you just, uh, for the purposes of the, of the record, what, what, by how much have the calls fallen since January? Uh, so, so not 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 by a huge uh, not by a huge amount, uh, but uh, so, so um, yeah, I'd, I'd have to dig out the precise numbers, and I can supply that up afterwards. But okay. I was looking at the trend lines earlier, uh, and, and the number of calls has reduced, uh, the number of inbound calls. That is uh, what what we've done because of uh, as as we've seen that reduction is we've uh, increased the number of outbound calls uh, that, that we're doing so where we see that uh, a trader um, has maybe got part way through uh, a, a declarations process uh, or, or perhaps hasn't raised any uh, supplementary declarations yet then we we proactively call out uh, to those traders uh, to offer assistance and see how we can help them uh, how we can help them go, go, go through that administration. Uh, so, so yeah, a, a gradual decline in the number of calls, and as I say, uh, a gradual uptick in the in the customer satisfaction rates. Um, as as we do as we introduce um, greater functionality, um, sometimes that that can result in uh, a, a, a small drop off in in customer satisfaction as people get used to the new processes. But then we again see that gradual rise happening again uh, but as i said more, more than happy to to supply some more detailed numbers on on, on the call statistics that would be helpful and um, on the point about familiarization uh, at the gb side have you seen any change there uh, clearly one of the issues that the press um, from businesses had faced is around um uh the um uh, their suppliers not being fully aware of the, um, the provision of the protocol. Have you seen any change in that regard? Yeah, so, so the outreach we do is to GB traders, um, just, just as much as NR traders, 58% uh, of registered users of TSS are, are traders based in GB. Uh, and this is very much, and has been a focus of ours to, 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 to focus uh, on, on, on those traders based in GB uh, equally as much as, as the traders in NI, and especially the, the small and medium-sized traders in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, and you've seen, uh, you've seen a positive improvement there in terms of awareness and familiarisation? Yeah, po positive improvements uh, right, right across the board. Um, and you know, f f further evidence is, you know, yes, we've had uh, over 330,000 downloads of, of user guides uh, from the uh, NICTA website. Uh, over time, uh, we're, we're, again, we're seeing the, 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 the downloads drop off as, uh, as people you know, become more used to the processes uh, and become uh, more, more comfortable uh, with what they're required to uh, un undertake okay. uh, in terms of administration. That's really helpful. I, um, if I could turn now to, to, to Sam primarily, although others feel free to answer if you, have, uh, if you, if you wish to. You may not have seen Sam, but in the last, uh, indeed for the benefit of the committee in the last um, half an hour, the Commission has published um, a press release and clarity on movement on uh, several solutions, including on um, obviously on chilled meats, as had been uh, identified, but also green uh, guide dogs, green card, which is a north-south services issue, and 
and specifically on medicines, and says that there will be a, a legislative proposal in the early autumn in order to make this work in time. So I just wanted to ask Sam, I, I wouldn't ask you, Sam, obviously, to comment in detail on, on something that's, that's um, developed while you've been uh, with us, but um, do you think um, that, uh, I suppose, what would be your comment on how the process has gone so far in terms of uh, establishing solutions to practical issues on the protocol? <laughs> it's a slightly political question. That's fine, I, I can. Insofar as I think that the UK and the EU would have got much further, much more quickly on this if there was a greater degree of trust and goodwill between the two parties. And I think both the EU and the UK have contributed to that lack of trust. But I also, and this is just a personal view, think it, one of the issues is that many of the solutions to some of the issues being faced uh, by traders trading from GB to NI might require tweaks or changes to the full trading relationship and the full UK-EU relationship. And those changes at times require the person who negotiated it to acknowledge that some of his priorities were skewed. And it's always difficult for someone who's negotiated an agreement to effectively implement it, because when you're implementing it, you notice problems. And you have to decide whether to acknowledge those problems and, and acknowledge that you made a mistake in the first instance uh, or not. But when it comes to the specifics of this extension, as you said, I haven't read the detail, although I have seen um, during the first panel the, the, the announcements. I think that's something that is positive. We've managed to avoid unilateral measures. It has been done jointly, and this does point to a warming of the relationship. I do think solutions exist in this space. So in medicines in particular, the, the EU has indicated it is willing to change its own regulations to allow for GB authorised medicines to be distributed in Northern Ireland. That's not something that's easy to do, but I think they do acknowledge that the protocol very much leaves Northern Ireland. Uh, the delivery of health services and the like in Northern Ireland in the hands of the UK, and they can see a legal hook by which to do it. I know they are finding it much more difficult to find a permanent solution on sanitary and phytosanitary issues, because again, that would require regulatory change in the EU, and there is less of a hook by which to do it. But if in the absence of permanent solutions, I am very much in favour of can-kicking for the meantime, but I do appreciate that that doesn't help when it comes to business certainty. Okay. Yeah. I mean, agreed uh, in terms of certainty. Um, just a, uh, a question about the totality of the economic relationship between the EU, your trade expert, and not just trade in goods. The, it has been said that the protocol um, represents a, um, uh, a you know, fundamentally Northern Ireland um, uh, moving closer to the rest of Ireland, the, the Republic of Ireland. Uh, in economic terms, w would it be fair to say that question. the provision of Brexit, that the, the meaning of Brexit is that in a range of areas we're, I'm not asking you to, come, to make a political comment, Sam, but... I wouldn't permit you to either. Sort of that well, I, I think it's relatively factual, but that mm. Northern Ireland, I mean, we've, in terms of the other uh, aspects of the single market that are not uh, about the movement of goods, that we are, in a sense, moving further away from both the Republic of Ireland and indeed the rest of the EU. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a uh, would that be a fair statement that while we we are regulated for goods uh, by the EU single market or by partially by the EU single market when it comes to 
for example, free movement of people, for example, provision of cross-border services, um, we are no longer we're moving further away from the EU, not closer. Yes, so, so, so Northern Ireland has left the EU just like the rest of the United Kingdom. It's just in respect of goods, this has remained within, or at least de facto within, for the most part, the EU single market for goods, and also in a way within its customs territory, although that gets complicated because it's a very conditional um, answer. But in other areas, when it comes to services, the UK, the Northern Ireland is like the rest of the United Kingdom. So if we think about financial services, Northern Irish firms have lost the ability to passport into the rest of the EU. If we think about issues around data, the all UK, uh, the data adequacy arrangements that have been signed off by the EU this week are incredibly important, not just for Great Britain, but also for companies in Northern Ireland, and perhaps more acutely in Northern Ireland, because of the amount of data that is shared between uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland. So, so, so yes, where, where whilst convergence does remain in this one space, in lots of other areas, new barriers uh, have arisen. And you know, there are some caveats to this. If you look at the cabotage provisions in the trade and cooperation agreements, there's some island-specific arrangements to allow for an additional stop within Ireland to take into account uh, Northern Ireland, the land border and proximity. But for the most part, um, Northern Ireland is in these other areas treated the same as the rest of the United Kingdom, which has economic uh, consequences, of course. Okay, thank you. I'll turn over now. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thanks. Malaysia. Oh, sorry. Shankar. Okay. Do you want to come in there? Um, well, I was just uh, I was just going to um, to come in on some crowd points that Christian was making, just to, to give you a sense of the interaction between the TSS and the um, uh, and and our customers, and also to answer Matthew's first question about the um, uh, the um, uh, GB suppliers and the role of GB suppliers in this. Uh, I should point out that fifty nine percent of our thirty nine or so thousand registered traders are GB entities. So um, we do have a lot of GB suppliers on our um, uh, TSS uh, database. We s distribute a, a, a bulletin that explains a lot of the processes um, uh, every week, and that goes to all of those uh, uh, traders. We do regular sessions with uh, CETA and other trade associations that are, that are associations of GB suppliers. So we, we do a lot of outreach work with GB suppliers, first point. Uh, and secondly, what we also see uh, in, in TSS is that when we, we're an evolving service, um, we're constantly issuing new releases, uh, new functionality to support traders as they move products from GB to Northern Ireland. And what we generally see is um, as new um, functionality goes in, we get more questions. And then traders understand the new process and they and tail off. And we tend to see that sort of a dynamic, you know, on a on a pretty uh, regular regular basis, we did design a process that was was based on a simplified frontier declaration to get you across the boundary as easily as possible. So we didn't have headlines like truck stopped, you know, outside uh, uh, Liverpool or any 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 of that. And that does require a supplementary declaration, and it has been. You know, difficult for traders to understand you know, the requirements of the supplementary declaration. Most of the outbound calls that Christian referred to um, are uh, are in fact about um, getting the supplementary declarations uh, situation sorted out for traders. And we've introduced a lot of new functionality. We constantly do, such as our supplementary declaration assistant, um, uh, other things that we're you know we're, we're introducing to make life as easy as possible for traders consistent with the legal requirements. Um, and I, I would say at the outset, um, the job of TSS 
Um, you know, there are three things that the protocol is, is trying to do. It's trying to make sure, obviously, there's no infrastructure between Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's trying to make sure there's unfettered access from NI to GB. And it's trying to make sure there's as free flow as possible from GB to NI. And the TSS pieces of this are the free, as free flow as possible GB NI and, um, uh, and uh, unfettered access NI to GB. So um, we continue to um, develop new, new ways of doing that. Um, and we continue to work with the protocol, obviously, to, to deliver it, including using things like the supplementary declaration system, using the UK trader scheme, which differentiates the not at risk category from the at risk category. So that um, for not at risk traders, where you're trading entirely within the UK customs territory, um, uh, you're able to do that expedited and, and facilitated way as possible. Okay. Okay, Tim, uh, we're sort of coming a bit time compressed as we are at the moment because we've got some other sort of events coming up. So I can, if I can ask Malaysia and sort of apologies, but asking you for a fairly short uh, question, please. Uh, yes, Fajr Oldling, you're all very welcome here uh, this evening. Now, um, uh, the TSS, uh, we receive a lot of criticism, uh, a lot of criticism from businesses and that as well too, to the point that where they say that it's not fit for purpose. Uh, how do you, how do you respond to that? Uh, yes, thank you for the question. Uh, we you know we we have heard uh, we have heard that criticism, uh, which um, I think was was a number of a number of months ago now, um, and I, I, I would say in response that the evidence we're seeing from the traders that we are interacting with uh, on the service on the, on a day to day basis uh, is that the service uh, is. Uh, is is helpful is is usable uh, it, it's helping them to um, to uh, process uh, their paperwork and undertake the administration they, they now need to they now need to uh, undertake um, as I said earlier we, we receive uh, a, a lot of positive feedback uh, every week uh, we've given some of that uh, examples of some of those in, in in the written statement yes I accept that some traders uh, have had challenges um, and, uh, and when we have seen that happening, uh, we have proactively reached out to those traders uh, to, to help them. Uh, once we have provided that assistance, then uh, inevitably we, we, we get really good feedback and we get thanks for the, for the help that's been offered. Uh, we have uh, in the contact center, as, as I said, we, we, we have um, 620 agents. Uh, the majority of those agents have more than two years of, of customs experience. Um, those are our, our tier two agents and our tier three agents actually uh, between them have have more than um, actually each of them has more than seven years of customs experience some of them uh, over 20 years and and it's those uh, where, where we see uh, traders having specific uh, challenges or problems um, then uh, we, we escalate up through those uh, tiers of agents so, so that we, we we provide the most appropriate expert resource uh, to, to help those traders. Um, so, so I'd say in response uh, to, to your question, uh, yes, there has been feedback as, uh, as, as you intimated. Uh, I think that that feedback for, from, from what I heard was from uh, a few months ago. And I think if we look at the statistics and the feedback receiving now from the traders, uh, the system is, is, is providing for their needs. As Shankar said as well, it's very much an evolving service. 
so every every six weeks or so, uh, we provide a, a new releases which which further enhance the user experience and makes it easier for the traders to to undertake that administration. Okay. Uh, just sorry, Chair, just an addition. Uh, I think it was Sam who also commented on the lack of trust between uh, the UK and uh, uh, EU. Uh, do you think that in some respect uh, underpin the difficulty they have in receiving data or sharing import data with each other? Uh, this was an issue that was actually flagged up by Sokovic uh, this week as an outstanding problem. So my understanding of this, and I'm sure others could could add into this, is it's actually more of an issue of the UK over committing and being unable to provide that data in the required time rather than a reluctance to provide it insofar as they've had to create a new system, they've had to pull stuff out from elsewhere and they just haven't got it all compiled. My belief is that we will see that data shared within the, in the coming months. And I would hope that that wasn't just a negotiating gambit and, and I've been led to believe it isn't. Okay. But has yeah, the failure to provide that data help contribute to the lack of trust? Of course it has, because it's something the UK committed to do and then didn't do. And, and, and you know, and we've had, we, we, we all, we've all lived <laughs> the arguments of the last few months. So, you know. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Belize. Sorry, just go ahead. Jim? Uh, two questions, if I might. A uh, short one, please. Yes. So we have a trusted, we have a trader support service with 900 staff. We've had almost 2 million uh, uh, declarations, all related to internal UK trade from GB to this supposed part of the United Kingdom. Could someone explain to me how that is reconcilable with the supposed assurance in Section 46 of the Internal Market Act of the free flow of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So, if I can, if I can uh, take that in initially uh, from a TSS perspective, um, uh, first of all, I would, I, I'd say that what what the protocol does, and I come back to the statement that both Chris and I made at the outset, which is that the job of the TSS is to deliver, and the job of the protocol basically is to deliver as free flow as possible, GBNI, not uh, not free flow, as free flow as possible. Um, requires us. There are customs procedures because the European UCC, the customs rules apply, but the um, issue with the the, 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 um, the protocol is that Northern Ireland is both is de jure in the UK customs territory and uh, de facto applies the rules of the European customs, the, the, the UCC, and that creates a very unusual situation, it's a special status, it's, it's, it's akin to a special economic zone in a way. Um, and administering those processes is what, is what, is what TSS does. Uh, therefore, um, you have a very different situation for goods that are moving from GB to NI not at risk than you have from goods that are moving from GB to NI on an at-risk basis. And there is much more flexibility and scope for facilitations in that area than not at risk area. And that's what we're seeking to, um, um, to, to capitalize on, to, to, to lower the, the, the volume of, uh, of trade. So that, that, that's, that's how TSS is looking at this issue. The other question I wanted to ask, last week we had evidence that much of this protocol inhibition and trade could be dealt with if you had a system of mutual enforcement. In other words, 
Northern Ireland authorities would enforce EU rules on anything exporting into the Republic, and vice versa, the Republic would enforce UK rules uh, on goods coming the other way. Could I ask Mr. Shanker, isn't that a far simpler, more viable proposition than the complexities and the constitutional upset of the protocol? I think it depends what you mean by, by mutual enforcement, and um, I'm aware of, uh, of this uh, idea. In fact, I'm very aware of it because it was in the. Uh, it's one of the many things that, that was suggested in the alternative arrangements work that I was um, involved in. Uh, the, the problem that I see with with the proposal is it doesn't solve a number of the key problems which actually do cause. Uh, all, the, all the difficulty that traders have. So, for example, you would still require a customs database. You would still require customs processes. You would still require uh, an equivalent of the TSS, you know, albeit if you're operating across the NI Ireland border, you would still require that customs database to deal with those kinds of traders. It would be a different group of traders, but it would be, um, uh, but it would be a group of traders. Um, and the, uh, even in alternative arrangements, we, we could not see how you would avoid um, SPS, uh, an SPS regime uh, over the island of Ireland, at least. Uh, and since many of the issues are related to SPS controls and checks, uh, we don't see that that would really make much of a meaningful difference. It also, you know, frankly, requires a level of trust. Um, between the parties that are operating it, but sort of, you know, you see a little bit of this on the Norway-Sweden border, where there's obviously a high, a high degree of trust. Um, you see some uh, regulatory recognition, not mutual enforcement of processes, but some regulatory recognition uh, between, let's say, Australia and New Zealand, where there's a lot of trust, uh, and trust has to get built up over over time. So. Um, while I certainly, you know, I still stand by the work that we did um, in alternative arrangements, um, you know, that was at a particular point in time. We're at a different point in time now. And um, my concern uh, with this is I think it, um, we are moving towards lowering the concern to traders. I think our, our, our goal is to make the process that traders have to experience at the NIGV boundary more like administration and less like a sort of full-fledged customs regulatory process. But it certainly, we, certainly, it certainly would put the border where it should be, at the frontier, instead of partitioning the United Kingdom. Yeah, so, so I think if you look at the boundary between NIGB <clears throat> as it's being implemented at the moment, um, it, it, it is, I mean, Northern Ireland is, without question, in a does have a special status under this under this arrangement. Um, there is no doubt that it has a special status. Um, there are aspects of the boundary that have processes that you would not normally see in a uh, in, in a customs within a customs territory. But on the other hand, there are also aspects of it that you wouldn't see between um, one customs territory and another customs territory. So, for example, the whole not category, the UK trader scheme. Uh, which covers, you know, a significant volume and value of trade. You wouldn't see that in, you know, between two customs territories. So it's got multiple aspects to it. And the question, I think, really is, can you make it as facilitated as possible? If you can't make it as facilitated as possible, um, if it cannot be reduced to, to something that looks a bit more like an administrative process, then yes, it's a huge, it is a, it is a burden. But, um, but you know, our perspective in TSS from the, the six months that we've been operating 
is we've seen a reduction in that <laughs> burden on traders. And the, the proof of the pudding actually is in the is in the trade data statistics. So, so if you look at GB to NI movements, and, and this is something that, that perhaps Mr. Holly can comment on, you actually see the trade data for GB NI direct movements going up compared to, to last year. So, despite um, despite COVID, the trade the trade statistics suggest that GB NI trade has increased, uh, and and TSS is a, is sort of administering that trade, and that suggests that it can be uh, achievable. Whereas by contrast, GB to Ireland trade, certainly over the central corridor like uh, you know, Holyhead, Dublin, has gone down significantly uh, after January 1, um, uh, 2021. So, so something is happening on that, on that, on that boundary um, that's better for, for, for traders, that, that is improving for traders. And the question I think we will uh, all sort of need to, uh, need to answer is, is that a trajectory that can get us to a point where uh, we get to, at that point, as free flow as possible? Uh, or is that not possible? And, and that, that's a question for, you know, for others. But, but I, I think Mr. Holly probably has some good statistics on, on how those two things have... Um, yeah, if you, don't, if you don't mind me jumping in, thanks, Schenker. The, yep. Schenker's absolutely right. The, the, the growth, every ferry route is down, apart from the new ferry routes, of course, from sort of Zeebrugge to Dublin or what have you, because they're completely new. But every other established ferry route has seen a reduction in traffic in the first six months of this year, apart from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has seen a year-on-year -year growth of 20%, whereas Dover is suffering because of the volume of traffic, the central corridor of the Irish Sea is suffering because of volume of traffic, and yet this, this, this continued growth. And going back to the previous question is that, you know, why should there be so many customs entries on, on consignments that are purely for G, internal trade? The, the point is that they're not, and, and you need to be able to identify which ones are for internal trade and which ones are not. And that equally works for Northern Ireland flows via, Holly, via Dublin, is that there needs to be, if you start to put more regulatory controls on the island of Ireland, it's going to be harder for a logistics operator in the north to ship out through the south because it's, there would be more controls that, that, than there are today. It's a, it's a much easier process today. So the, the, the issue with Brexit generally is you've gone from a situation where goods that flowed previously freely and in a, on the basis of the goods being innocent and less proven guilty, they're now almost guilty and less proven innocent. And the customs declaration is, is the document that says, that gives more information about that. I think that where, where Shankar and, and, and uh, Christian have been, have been completely right is that although there is more administrative burden, that there, are, there hasn't been any significant delay to the movement of goods. And that's proved by the fact that the, the Kenran Lan routes and uh, Kenran Belfast routes have seen a 20% growth when everybody else has seen a reduction in traffic. I think you should talk to some of my constituents who've had trailers stuck at Larnport, and you take a very different view, sir. No, they may be SPS. They may be SPS controls. It's very unlikely to be the customs element. And the SPS, look, I think the UK trader scheme has a, has a position, uh, greater use of the UK trader scheme has a position, uh, as a point to play here. Um, but I agree, I've had trucks stuck at, uh, at Belfast and at Larn for, in, in Dunkridge Street for the wrong paperwork. It's always SPS. It's always SPS controls, and they are the most cumbersome. Okay. And, I, and I think that there is an opportunity to continue to simplify and facilitate and to use the, the, the UK trader scheme. Uh, and so to come back to your question on mutual 
enforcement. Um, I think the better approach is to is to say, well, let's 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 use the UK trader scheme. Let's use the not at risk category um, uh, to determine because obviously, with, with regard to SBS, there's no doubt that under the protocol, the European rules, the European SBS rules apply, and you need to comply with the European SBS rules. But the evidence that you need to provide to show compliance and the way you adduce that evidence. Uh, is, there is a difference between the not at risk category and the at risk category. And I think if we explore that a bit more, um, uh, we'll be able to, to deal with some of the SPS restrictions and, and, and difficulties uh, as well. And, and certainly, there are a number of things that we can do, simplifications, facilitations, that are fully UCC compliant, trusted trader schemes, periodic declarations, aggregation. There's a lot of things that we can do. That, uh, that lower the, 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 the impediments uh, and, and the barriers. And I think you know, TSS is working to introduce a lot of that functionality so that um, you know, depending on what the EU and the UK ultimately agree, we can actually support, um, uh, support all of those movements. Okay, thanks very much, Adit Shankar, for that. Pat? Uh, thanks, Chair, and um, thank you as well. Ooh, uh, I want to talk just quickly on the trader support service. It's very small. I've not told you it's back very long. Uh, I've looked uh, down and people have come back to me to say they're very impressed uh, with the rollout. I'm looking there at 90% of declarations successfully processed in less than 15 minutes. Now, during this pandemic, I have to say well done. And uh, I know a lot of your staff are, are working at home as well. But you see the 10% uh, that weren't processed uh, in that 15 minutes. With your education and your engagement and your trader uh, preparedness that you are working through, is that 10% marginalising now? That's taken it in from the 21st of, say, of January. But if you look at it now, it must be significantly less than 10% on a week-by-week -week basis of those that are not being successful or processed within the 15 minutes? That's the first part of the question. It really was for Christian. So um, I, I apologise, but I, I, I found that uh, I, I only caught part of that question. Okay, there, there was a break-up in the sound, so, right, so more than uh, it might be on my side. 90% of the declarations are successfully processed in less than 15 minutes. So that leaves 10%. Yes. The main part of the question was, that was 10% from the 21st of January. But if we look at it where you are now, surely with your educational system, your engagement, and your trader uh, preparedness that you have there, this number must be coming down. It's not nowhere near 10% now. And I want to commend your staff for working through this pandemic, because they are very impressive set of results there that are read there today yes so so yeah th th thank you very much and 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 we are seeing uh we we are, we are seeing those uh, submission times and those processing times uh, c come down all the time i mean the, the majority of declarations that are submitted uh if the information is correct if the documentation is correct are submitted almost in instantaneously uh, over to uh, HMRC, to the CDS system. Um, the, the, it's, it's fair to say that when we introduced supplementary declarations, uh, we saw that uh, more traders needed more assistance, which, which we supplied. 
uh, and and also that uh, yeah that some traders were struggling with the information that they they needed to provide. So, but over time and over the last few weeks, especially, uh, we've seen the right first time rate uh, increase dramatically uh, as we've improved the education, as traders have got used to using the service, and as as we've introduced more enhancements to the service that make it more difficult for the traders to make mistakes. But, but yes, thank you. I very much appreciate uh, your comments, and I will pass that on to uh, the members of the uh, service. Thank you. Well done. And the other one was for Sam. If you could explain to me, maybe I missed, I don't know if the rest of the committee members were aware of the 25 cent refund. Did I hear that right? On fuel from Northern Ireland if the, if the hauliers are going into the European market? That, that was me, actually. I'm yeah, going to take time. credit for that one, if you don't mind. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. Um, there has always been in Europe an essential user rebate on fuel. Um, used to be known as TIPP, professional diesel, uh, pro professional petroleum, basically. Um, and we, we used to handle a lot of these claims for hauliers based in, in Northern Ireland and in mainland uh, GB. Of course, when Brexit finished, we're no longer part of the EU, and you, you had to be part of the EU in order to uh, be eligible for this rebate, which is 25 cents in, uh, in Belgium. I think it's about 16 cents a litre. This is a significant, this is 70 or 80 pounds per full tank of fuel, you know? So this is, these are not small figures. Um, and in France, I think it's about 16 cents a, cent a litre, but you had to be registered in the EU, and of course that disappeared uh, on the 1st of January. Um, the, uh, if I, if I believe what the, the RHA are telling me, it's not quite over the line yet, but the RHA have done some great work in lobbying for the, for the NI operators to, to keep this, uh, and to all accounts they've won, they've got, uh, they've got approval on it, which is a fabulous advantage. I, look, I would expect to see a lot of transport companies, in fact I ran a poll on, on LinkedIn the other day and it was quite positive that there will be a lot of transport companies in GB who will now flag out to NI. So expect to see a lot more Northern Ireland police. <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, that's really 20%. I mean, that gives, that's a, a, a really strong advantage, and it shows the potential of where we are. I'm trying to look at all of the positives coming out of here today. So You've got a declaration of interest. You own a haulage company? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Our hauliers here in Northern Ireland a really strong advantage of nearly 20% on their fuel costs, like across Belgium, and 16% in France. I, I should have picked up when you turn that to percentages that you know more than just the uh, the cost of fuel in for a truck that you have. But look, it is an advantage. It, it's uh, it, it, and it's only available because of the unique situation of the prototype. Yes. Yeah, well, uh, well, I, I think. Like, well done. I have to commend that then. That's great news to me. I can, I can say categorically, Pat, that for once now I recognise that somewhere, even even the teeny slightest way, I've heard for the first time some benefit in this program. Well, I wanted to bring it out to show it to you, sure. I'm always good <laughs> educated and learned. Uh, right, on that note, thank you very much indeed, gentlemen. Thank you very much, Christian, Shanker, Robert, and Sam. Thank you very much indeed for your. Evidence. Thank you very much indeed for coming through, and thank you very much indeed for sort of providing the written evidence as we've come through. But uh, sort of have a have a good rest of the day. Uh, you've probably seen us sort of beavering away behind the scenes and the rest of it, but the European Union statements just come out uh, this afternoon. So some of us have been trying to have a look at that to see uh, 
whether I'll be able to, whether I still need my dog to get uh, vaccinated against non-existent diseases like rabies. But um, that's not a political comment. That's a veterinary comment. Okay. Thank you very much, indeed, team. Thank you. Cheers. Thank, thank, you, thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you. Um, team, for what we're on, we just need to stay core, but we've got a couple of bits and pieces that yeah. we need to do. I will try and accelerate them through. Uh, item number... Okay, right, sir. Uh, item number eight uh, in the agenda, written briefing, retention and disposal. The retention and disposal schedule for the Department of Finance was led in the Business Office under Section 8.2 of the Public Records Act, and in accordance with the rules of the Disposal of Documents Order 1925 by the Public Record Office Northern Ireland, a copy is at page 142. These schedules are subject to negative resolution procedure. This means that if the committee or any members objects to the disposal of any document on the schedule, it can pray against it. This is done by submitting a motion for plenary debate to require preservation for any scheduled records. If no motion to preserve is made within the statutory period, the scheduled disposals will be implemented. The statutory period ex expires on the 21st of September 21. Uh, I hate to be a pain, but if you look at 153 on your papers, you will notice that for the issues of health and safety and claims and fire safety records and inspections, uh, the department are considering a retention period of five years and then destroying the papers. There is also an issue when it comes to premises on acquisitions at seven years and destroying uh, the records. Um, I've got some problems with that, bearing in mind trying to keep on top of what's going on, particularly with the procurement issues, and indeed uh, I'm looking particularly at my two members from the party who hold the in infrastructure minister. If that indeed was the case, some of the issues that were being dealt with at the moment, and she was in the assembly discussing, particularly to do with uh, procurement contracts, uh, some of those records would have gone. Uh, I have concerns about the timescales of that, and I think I would like to get some further information about how those compare with other government departments across these islands on those specific issues. What drew me to the attention, and I apologise, Clark, for not bringing it up earlier, but there was something about it when I was looking at uh, health and safety records, and I thought that the uh, retention period of five years was probably too short. And indeed, not only was it too short, the uh, application to destroy them after five years, I think, would be something that I might have a degree of concern with. But I'm willing to be, uh, I would rather have some advice from what happens in the rest of, across the rest of these islands before we're in a position to uh, make that uh, situation. Are there any other comments from any other members? Uh, no, Chair, other than I think that's uh, reasonable to ask for more information. Uh, I think you're right that, that there, was a particular, there is a particular uh, issue that... Are, that um Structural Minister has highlighted. So, if, if the request is for more information, I think that's reasonable. Yeah, it's just to me when it's also about health and safety records and it's about accidents, it says retention period for five years. I know that there, I'm dealing with as a constituency case accidents relating to work within the Northern Civil Service that were much longer than five years ago and they're having difficulties getting records. So, just concerned. Sort of Inland Revenue requests that businesses keep them for seven. Yeah, that's what. Again, that's 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 you know. To me, it just looked like sort of the, the figures seem to be quite short. Okay, if we have to write to the department in those right terms. Right to the department in those terms. Thank okay. you. Uh, if we move on to item number nine, written briefing, business tenancies restriction of forfeiture, ministerial correspondence on page two hundred and sixteen, advising the committee of the forthcoming secondary legislation, the business tenancies coronavirus restrictions of forfeiture, Northern Ireland number two, regulations twenty twenty one. 
Uh, our government announced its intentions to significantly extend statutory measures that protect commercial tenants from eviction to the 25th of March 2022, as well as announcing major plans for primary legislation for England at Westminster. That legislation will act to both ring-fence outstanding unpaid rent built up during the pandemic, as well as providing for the imposition of a compulsory and boundary statutory arbitration process for rental disputes. As the protections currently in place in Northern Ireland are due to expire, officials were instructed to make an urgent statutory rule to extend the relevant period for restrictions on forfeiture until 30 September 2021. There will be no SL1. The SL5 will come to the committee next week. Um, one of the questions I asked when I was briefing Peter earlier on, I would like your sort of thoughts on. It seems strange that we are looking for a restriction of forfeiture under the 30th September. So we will be coming back and immediately reconsidering it. Uh, should we be asking the department, because we've got time to look at it again next week, should we be asking the department whether they should be pushing that time out in line with what's happening across the rest of the country? It just seems uh, surprising that, um, um, particularly where the minister is looking, when there's protection going out to the 25th of March 2022 in the rest of the country, and we're only doing up to the 30th of September. Are you happy for me to, for us to write to the, the department and ask for further views on that and why they're not going to push the, the date further out? Yeah, agreed. Okay, thank you. Uh, moving on to correspondence. Uh, correspondence. Members are asked to note the index of 11 received items of correspondence at page 219. The members are asked to note a memorandum reply at page 222 to the Public Accounts Committee on the, major, the report Major Capital Projects. Uh, the Public Accounts Committee recommended important governance changes to the role of the head of the civil service as accounting officer for all departments. Members are advised that the PAC will formally consider the memorandum of reply and then other committees will be free to scrutinise. Are we content to note? So noted. Uh, legislative programme, uh, item three. Members are asked to note page 232, a response from the Department on its current legislative programme. Of note is that the social value, pro social value and procurement legislation is unlikely to progress in, the progress in this mandate, and no timescales provided for fire safety building regulations. I think that I would like to get some uh, views on that, because I understand that they're saying it's because there's been a delay in the legislation coming in about from England and Wales. But are we content to get some more information about the delay in fire safety regulation, bearing in mind our concerns surrounding sort of Grenville and the evidence we've received? Are we content on that? Great. Okay. Uh, item number four, accruing, re accruing resources. Members asked to note at page 237 the departmental response in regards to accruing resources, which advised that accruing resources which exceed levels projected in the estimates are retained in Northern Ireland. Is the committee content to note? Noted. Uh, designation of arms length bodies. Members are asked to also note the department was on page 239 regarding the different designations available to arms length bodies. Is the committee content to note? Noted. Uh, delay to the Northern Ireland civil pensions payments, civil service pension payments. Members are asked to also note at page 242 a further departmental update on the delay of payments to members of the civil service pension scheme in May this year. The department confirms this error was with the Northern Ireland civil service and not capita as previously indicated. Are we content to note? Noted. Okay. And I apologise to Capita for, uh, did, I think I added them onto the list of complaints that we had when I was speaking in front of the Minister at the Assembly the other day. I think there was about 10, so it's only nine now. 
Uh, item 10.7, invitation. Members are asked to note at page 243 an invitation from the Women's Policy Group Northern Ireland to attend the relaunch of the Women's Policy Group COVID-19 Feminist Recovery Plan on Wednesday, the 28th of July, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. via Zoom. Are we content to note? So noted. Building fire safety. Members are asked to consider at page 246 a response from the Department for Communities regarding building fire safety programme, confirming measures taken in respect of tar blocks. It is understood that the Department of Finance is back in the lead for this matter rather than the head of the civil service, and a further response from the Department is expected. I think we were briefed that it was, um, it was being handed over to the head of the civil service. And now we're being told by the Department of Communities it's come back from the head of the civil service. Um, I would quite like some clarity from the department of who actually has responsibility for this issue, because I think it's important, bearing in mind the previous level of co area of co correspondence we're looking at. Are you content for me to write to the department to ask that question? Thank you. And we're also content to forward to Rockwell Limited uh, the issue about who has responsibility for building fire safety. Are we content to forward that to Rockpool, Rockwell Limited? Agreed. Agreed. Written statement June monitoring. Members are asked to note on page 250 ministerial correspondence and a written statement in relation to the 2020-2021 provisional outturn and 21-22 June monitoring. The Department will brief this on the 7th of July. Are we content to note? Great. Uh, Northern Ireland Audit Office Corporate Plan. Members are asked us to note on page 280 correspondence from the Northern Ireland Audit Office advising of its work in respect of the Department of Finance, providing a copy of its corporate plan. Are members content to note? Great. Uh, item 10.11, increasing building regulation fees. Members are asked to consider at page 321 correspondence from the Department of a consultation plan for the summer involving a 35% increase in building regulation fees. Are members to content to receive a summary of responses following the consultation? Any comments? 35% increase in building regulation fee. 35%. Would it be useful in the final week before recess if we had a note from the Department of, of a breakdown of why there was a 35% increase in the fees? Because I think it will be of interest not only to uh, MLAs but the name of our constituents. Are we agreed? agreed. Happy Gemma. Happy Malisha. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. agreed. Uh, item 12, participatory budgeting. Bu sorry, participatory budgeting. Members are asked to note at page 340 a copy of correspondence from the committee for the executive office to the department seeking its views on the use of participatory budgeting. Budgeting. Are members content to note? Noted. Note. Composite request. Members are asked to consider the composite request at page 342. Are we content to note and content? The committee's composite request is an accurate and complete record of our information requests. Are we content and agreed? Agreed. agreed. The forward work programme. Uh, are we content with the forward work programme? Yes. Agreed. Any other business? No. Nope. No. Date and time of the next meeting. Sorry we sort of went Thank on you. a bit, uh, gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, but uh, next meeting is at 1400 in here on this next Wednesday. Thank you very much indeed. The meeting. Oh, sorry, Gemma. Sorry. Are you waving? Oh, so, <laughs> <sorry. laughs> day. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for the long the, the session. Cheers, Malaysia. Cheers, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, thank you. Uh,